Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time, and for the past three months, the Halloween franchise. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me for this discussion of the second installment of David Gordon Green's Halloween franchise, Halloween Kills, is my friend, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, thank you, Darren. How are you this evening? I'm good, I'm good. And and we're joined, as we have been for the past 11 weeks of this show, by the wonderful Joey Kyo. How are you, Joey? I'm a, I'm a little confused about when evil dies. Is it is it tomorrow? Is it this afternoon? Could you guys elucidate for me? Uh, do we have a schedule? Have we a clearly agreed when that's going to happen? When... When is it happening? <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like it's a matter. We need to table this discussion. We're going to get a group together and have a nice civilized <laughs> conversation about it. <laughs> and we have a special guest for this episode: the wonderful William Bibiani. How are you, William? Hi. Uh, yeah. Hi. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. I, I don't know if I'll just take the compliment. I'm I'm bad with compliments. I don't usually take them well. Thank you for calling me wonderful. That's very kind of you. I'm a huge fan of oh, everyone of here. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, no, our, our delight. Yeah, it was one of those things where it was kind of... We are often embarrassed to invite people on our silly little podcast. So thank you for saying yes. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I was going to say you, you are the biggest name amongst us all. So we are honored to <laughs> oh, be in God. your presence. <laughs> I hear I was literally having imposter syndrome walking into this. So there you go. I, I think Neil Gaiman once told a story where he was like, at a party and he was feeling like he had no right to be there. Everyone there was so famous and cool. And he talked to this older guy who was right next to him. And the older guy was like, yeah, I know. I get that as well. I have no idea why I'm here. And that guy's name was Buzz Aldrin. So. <laughs> oh, man. Like, I might be getting that story slightly wrong, but like, it's still, it's, it's worth knowing. Like, imposter syndrome hits literally everyone. So. In any case, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Um, so we are, we've been talking through the Halloween franchise. Obviously, myself, Andrew, and Joey, we've talked about all the previous installments. As we've had kind of a rotating pool of guests, we've been asking them, I think the joke is like Jason Clark and Oppenheimer, what is your relationship to the Halloween franchise? What is your, like, do you remember the first time you saw the movies? Did you watch them all as a, as a kid? Like, do you have a particular association with them? And do you have a hot take on Michael Myers? Well, like, it's embarrassing now, but, like, I did, you know, have a dalliance uh, in, like, the Halloween political party in college. Now, I was never officially a member, uh, but, you know, I did attend a few <laughs> things. It was just a way to meet people, and now it's really embarrassing, and I know I'm going to get... No. Um, <laughs> a fellow traveler. <laughs> there you go. I, I, you know, I, I was born in the early 80s, so I wasn't there when the original Halloween came out. By the time I was, like, fully conscious of the Halloween franchise. There had already been multiple films. And it had already felt like it had, like, stepped into the world of legend. You know, like, if you were growing up in the mid-1980s, you know, there was, like, this sort of holy trinity of slasher villains. There was Jason Voorhees, there was Freddy Krueger, and there was Michael Myers. And then to a different extent, because it's really not a slasher genre, there were other icons like Pinhead. And, of course, the Universal Monsters as well. But um, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, and Jason Voorhees felt immediate. It felt like they were like our generation's urban legend type boogeymen. And so to actually sit down and watch those movies was like you were sort of being initiated into, you know, the midnight society, like around a campfire and are you afraid of the dark? Um, so I had picked up 
on Michael Myers. I was familiar. Obviously, I knew the music. It was on every, like, Halloween mixtape everyone always had. <laughs> but I, I remember very distinctly the day when I was, like, I was, I was, my parents weren't too precious with me not seeing R-rated movies. Like, my dad took me to see, like, RoboCop and Predator in theaters. So yes. that was, like, five or six. <laughs> so, uh, and I turned out fine, sort of. Um, <laughs> Did he take you to see them or did he just go to see them with you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A little bit of column A, a little bit of column A. But but when it came to like the serious kind of horror movies, they were a little bit more careful because like this is designed to scare little kids. And I was a scared kid. I actually was afraid of the dark. Um, So it wasn't until I was like in my sort of late elementary school days, junior high school days that I started feeling confident enough to watch like the really scary stuff. And I, we rented Halloween. We, we didn't own it. It wasn't on TV. Um, very specifically so that I could watch it. And I waited until my parents had gone to bed. It was like 9 o'clock on like a Friday. And I put the movie in the thing. And I was like, I am going to have the full experience. I'm going to do the best I can here. I turned off all the lights. And I put on John Carpenter's Halloween. And the lights were on again by the end of the credits. <laughs> At the end of the credits, like, nope, <laughs> that's creepy. That's just a scary pumpkin with the terrifying music. No, thank you, sir. Um, in any case, I watched it all the way through. It's it's a it's a masterpiece. It's an incredible motion picture. It's iconic and influential for a reason, and I deeply, deeply loved it. And it was one of those movies where you know the original is so great that the sequels really had trouble holding up to it. And so it wasn't for a really long time that I started to appreciate really any of the sequels. I'm not a huge fan of Halloween 2. Uh, Season of the Witch, I've come around to liking because like there's that initial thing where it's like, oh, it's not Michael Myers, I'm mad at it. And then I realized that that's a me problem, not a movie problem. I have to approach the movie on its own terms. And on its own terms, it's fun, but I feel like it's almost approaching overrated status now. Yeah. Like, it's so fun. It's yep. so easy and so fun and so popular to say it's underrated that I've seen people, like, say it's better than the original. And I'm like, slow yeah. down. <laughs> yes. That is crazy talk. You have waded into the podcast Halloween 3 Wars. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, exactly. And listen, I, it's fun. It's a fun movie. I got... <laughs> yeah. But even... Yeah, I, I I think like even the people uh, like myself and Darren who will defend the movie, we won't say that it's better than the original. Yeah, I feel, I feel like that's a bit much. So, but um, I loved Halloween Four. I actually think Halloween Four is one of the better films in the series. I think it's very it works. Just it's a splendid slasher. Um, five and six go completely off the rails. Um, Halloween H two O was the first one that I actually I think saw in theaters, uh, and. I still think Halloween H2O holds up really, really great. I think it is maybe Jamie Lee Curtis's best performance in these movies. Um, it, you know, it's got some wonky bits like every Halloween movie, but I think it's just a highly effective horror drama. And I love it to pieces. Resurrection is nonsense again. Uh, I, <laughs> I rejected Rob Zombie's initial Halloween because it felt like he missed the point. And by the time I saw Halloween 2, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, I realized that once again, I had fallen victim to the Halloween three thing where I was approaching the movie on my terms, not its own. And while I still think that original Rob Zombie Halloween isn't amazing, I think Rob Zombie's Halloween two is maybe the second best film in the whole franchise. And I love it to pieces. I think he does something like truly distinct and interesting with it in a way that very few filmmakers did. And then David Gordon Green came back 
to reboot it again. We've needed like it's our third Halloween two, and I like that movie a lot. I think it. I think it falls into this weird trap where the specific raison d'etre of that film was to unmake the plot point where Laurie Strode was Michael Myers' sister. Yeah, which I actually fully support. But then they bent over backwards to make it all about Laurie Strode again. And it felt like they were trying to, like, say we're not your usual Halloween while being absolutely your usual Halloween. And I think on a dramatic level, I actually think H2O works better. But when it comes to Halloween Kills, I'm one of this uh, franchise's most fervent, uh, one of this film's most fervent defenders. I actually think this is one of the very best films in the series. Mm-hmm. And um, I, will, I'll, I know you're going to talk about Halloween ads after this. I see what they're doing. I don't think they did it very well. So what it boils down to is Halloween is like a two or three great movies, a whole bunch of, well, you tried. (laughs) And, but the the reason why it persists is because that original film is still so powerful that you can't erase it from the consciousness. We have to keep coming back to it over and over again because Michael Myers is just that fascinating. Um, All right then. And, so you obviously you saw this when it came out. You were charting in real time. I've seen like you reviewed Halloween Ends for the Wrap. I couldn't find anything outside the Critical Acclaim Network covering Halloween Kills. I Sorry. I I had asked to review Halloween Kills, but it ended up like I think debuting at a film festival and yes. someone else covered it, which is you know it was a bummer. But whatever. I really wanted to go on the record better about why I think this one's brilliant. Uh, so yeah, I, I other than my podcast review, and uh, you can see on the Wrap, I, I have an article where I ranked all of the Halloween movies. You'll get my thoughts there in sort of a truncated form. But yeah, I don't have a full review published of it. Yeah, one of the reasons why I reached out was because I read your rap review and in of Halloween Ends, and there was a line in that in which you noted that Halloween Kills, to your mind, did what Halloween Ends was attempting to do better. Mm. And I was like, that feels like something to unpack. Mm. Um, so, ju- and, and you mentioned that this premiered at a film festival. I cannot get over the kind of like the glow up the Halloween franchise has had. We talked about it last week. We talked about like the 2018 Halloween, which premiered at the same Toronto International Film Festival as Green Book. This premiered at the Venice International Film Festival, which is kind of incredible to believe for a franchise that, you know, in the 1980s was kind of running out of steam and running itself into the ground. Um, How completely it's kind of reinvented itself. Um, just very quickly to talk just in terms of the production history, just to bring everybody up to speed on this. When they were developing, I think Joey mentioned last week, when they were developing the original Halloween, uh, sorry, the 2018 Halloween, um, Green basically pitched to Bloomhouse that he had ideas for sequels. Himself and McBride originally considered writing the first two movies back to back. Although apparently McBride said, look, we don't know how the 2018 Halloween's going to perform. So do we want to waste a year of our lives preparing for a movie that either may not happen or may happen in a different form if this bombs and they decide to push it in a different direction? It's kind of interesting how the trilogy develops because like Kills ends up in this weird position where it is kind of conceived of at the same time as Halloween, the 2018 version. But it ends up being kind of developed in parallel with Halloween Ends. Because obviously due to the massive success of Halloween, which we talked about last week, and again, Halloween 2018, it's very strange talking about a series where three of the movies are called Halloween. But that movie ended up being a massive success, and Bloomhouse decided that they were going to develop two sequels in parallel. Now again, we will talk about it as we go into it. 
according to Bloom, one of the big issues was that Green knew what he wanted to do with the 2018 Halloween and what he wanted to do with Halloween Kills. It took him a little bit longer than expected to figure out how to do Halloween Ends. The original plan was the two movies would shoot back to back. And there were apparently originally they were announced as going to come out in the same month, in October 2020. That was very quickly scrapped and brushed aside. This movie went into uh, production in late 2019. And I think this is very important to kind of like, when we're going to talk about what this movie is about, we're going to talk about the context in which it is released, we're going to talk about the reception of it. Uh, I think it's very important to remember that this is a movie that was written and produced in 2019. Um, And into early 2020 and was originally intended to release in October 2020 and was postponed and put on the shelf as a result of the COVID pandemic. By the time the COVID pandemic happened, it was already well into post-production. Apparently Carpenter had pretty much finished his score, I believe, by the time the pandemic kicked off. And obviously due to the pandemic, it ended up being pushed back from October 2020 into October 2021. And then it was kind of released in a, a very charged context in which it was read in a number of very charged ways that I think maybe impacted the way in which it was received and the context in which it was kind of perceived. But okay, so that is the background just in terms of talking about Halloween Kills. Um, Joey, do you have any preliminary thoughts on this movie before we ask three questions and move into the spoiler zone? I'm assuming before we move on, Darren, that you'll have no charged interpretations of what this movie... (laughs) (laughs) What this movie is about... yeah yeah no it's just literally about the things that are depicted on screen yeah it's about a guy <laughs> called michael myers who has a knife and kills a bunch of people it's like well what, what more do you want there's no no subtext here i mean i do feel like i put my cards on the table a bit last yeah. week when i was like david gordon green's halloween trilogy is about the fascist boogeyman haunting america in the 20 teens and i do think that maybe when we talk about halloween kills we'll get into Maybe the finger was a little too tightly on the pulse in 2019. So when it eventually came out in 2021, that gravity was inescapable. But Joey, do you remember the first time you saw Halloween Kills and your initial reaction to it? I do. God, I was so excited because I love Halloween 2018. Man, I was so excited to watch this. I watched it opening night with my movie buddy. And when Jim Cummings popped up, the two of us just looked at each other. Where we were like, ah, it's Jim Cummings. Uh, which he tweeted about it afterwards and was like, yeah, all the indie kids, they all saw me in there and they were excited. Um, but yeah, I just I just loved it. I actually watched it in the cinema twice because I dragged my poor husband to watch it, uh, which has actually become kind of a thing because I dragged him to watch Halloween Ends the following year. Our anniversary is Halloween. so <laughs> And we saw it in like a little screen where it was way too loud. And I was so scared that he was going to hate it. Um, but yeah, afterwards, I remember him just being like, yeah, I don't get what the big fuss is about. Why does everyone hate it? Um, so that's like my my memory of Halloween Kills but I just I love this movie I think this movie it gets richer every time I watch it I'm so excited to talk about it we're finally here <laughs> it's it's funny because I remember the specific context in which I first saw Halloween Kills and I, I think we've talked a little bit on the podcast before about like the weird space in which I exist as a critic where Obviously, I live and work in Ireland. Uh, I obviously have written for Irish publications. I do radio in Ireland. But somehow I am kind of more accepted by American companies and American publicists than I am by Irish publicists um, and Irish companies. They're the local distribution arms. So I struggled to get invited to a screening of this uh, held by Universal Ireland 
And uh, to be fair, I believe there were some complications around the release. It was very close. It was very tight. All that sort of stuff. But I was able to secure a digital screener from Peacock because obviously this was both a day and date release in terms of digital downloads and in terms of theatrical cinema release. So I remember getting a notification from Peacock that my screener would come through at 5am Irish time on the morning that this was due to be released, the Friday this was releasing, and I was due to cover it on Irish radio at like a quarter past nine. So I remember, you know, heading downstairs in my dressing gown in the pitch black in October at like 4.30am to sit down and wait for the screener watch this on my computer, in my living room, drinking hot chocolate, which is a very surreal way to watch this movie, particularly in contrast to the the gigantic premiere that we talked about last week with Jamie Lee Curtis in The Lighthouse. (laughs) And to be fair, I, I was booked in. I saw it that evening again in a crowded cinema, had a very different energy, I think it's safe to say, than the reception of that premiere of 2018's Halloween. But yeah, I, I do think it's worth unpacking that release context for the movie, because as we've been going along, you know, this isn't just a history of Halloween, this is a history of horror, but it's also a history of, like, American cinema. I think that as we've been charting the history of the Halloween franchise, we've been able to take, like, a snapshot of where the industry is, where the genre is, where the franchise is at a given moment in time. And Halloween Kills is notable, as I mentioned, because it went straight to streaming, and it arrived, obviously, in the midst of a global pandemic, but at a time when studios were still trying to figure out the release model for these kind of films. How to release movies onto streaming. Because obviously, for years, major studios had wanted to release movies digitally direct to the public. The idea was that you could cut out the cinematic middleman. You wouldn't have to split half of your profits with theatres if you could just pump these movies directly into viewers' sitting rooms for a nominal fee. I think Universal was one of the big proponents of this with Tower Heist. They'd always kind of wanted to do it. Universal, obviously, as soon as the pandemic hit, I remember the axe falling and them immediately releasing, I think, three movies on streaming, like, simultaneously. So it was like, it was as soon as the pandemic hit, you could watch The Hunt, you could watch The Invisible Man, and you could watch Emma from the comfort of your own home. Um, those were movies that were in cinemas when the pandemic hit. As soon as theaters shut down, Universal kind of pulled the lever and they went straight on. They also, I think, very famously did Trolls World Tour, a direct digital premiere, which performed so well that, you know, studios started to feel a bit more brazen about shipping stuff directly there. And again, I think of, of other movies like Irresistible, I think, was also a Universal movie that went, instead of going to cinemas, direct to streaming early in the pandemic as well. And there was this kind of sense of, well, is this the future? Is this what the future of the medium looks like? And obviously, as it goes on, it becomes clear that these are not sustainable. Universal begins to pull back after, I think, The King of Staten Island and other movies like that don't perform as well as Trolls World Tour did. Perhaps because Trolls World Tour was a family film at a point where, like, families and parents were locked indoors with young kids who desperately needed entertainment and were willing to pay whatever it took in order to get it. But you did have this kind of shift towards a hybrid model, Uh, in late 2020 and into 2021 during that kind of second wave of COVID where, and of course we've joked that this isn't just a podcast about Halloween, it's a podcast about lists. So yes, I do have (laughs) a list of movies that were released simultaneously in theaters and on streaming around this time to give you a sense of context. So you had obviously 
the Project Popcorn movies that, like, Warner's really pushed through with HBO. You had Wonder Woman 1984 in December 2020, Judas and the Black Messiah in February 2021, Tom and Jerry February 2021, Godzilla vs. Kong March 2021, but you also had other movies like Disney's Ryan the Last Dragon, Mortal Kombat, which is a Warner Brothers release, Those Who Wish Me Dead, the Angelina Jolie firefighter movie, Cruella, which was a Disney movie, went straight to premium video on demand, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, another Warner Brothers release in June 2021, Black Widow, another premium release in July 2021, Jungle Cruise, another Disney premium release, also July 2021, Space Jam, A New Legacy, simultaneously HBO and theaters, The Suicide Squad, HBO and theaters, Reminiscence, which is a movie that nobody remembers, Lisa Joy's directorial debut, starring Hugh Jackman, HBO and theaters, Paw Patrol, the movie, which was Paramount's big streaming play, Malignant, which is James Wan's horror movie, again, HBO and theaters, September 2021, The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel movie, again, HBO, Project Popcorn, October 2021. The Addams Family, the animated version of that starring Oscar Isaac, which was October 2021, just in time for Halloween. Dune as well, again, HBO theaters. King Richard, which is the movie that won Will Smith the Oscar and led to the famous slap. That was November 2021, HBO and theaters. Matrix Resurrections, which brings down the curtain on Project Popcorn as a failure. That's December 2021. But then you also had like Marry Me, Firestarter, which is a universal horror movie in May 2022, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which is another universal play, late September 2022, obviously Halloween Ends, which was October 2022, which seemed to be one of the last of these major releases, and obviously uh, by the time this comes out, you will have also had Five Nights at Freddy's, which will come out in October 2023, and feels like an interesting culmination of that experiment. And what's really interesting about the release of Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends simultaneously in theaters and on streaming is that it wasn't Universal that pushed for this. It was Bloomhouse. Apparently, it was Jason Bloom himself wanted these movies to release simultaneously on streaming and in theaters as a form of insurance. And the reason that he pushed for that was because Universal had released Freaky, a movie that I think everybody on this podcast really, really likes, mm. directly into theaters at the height of the pandemic, and it had massively underperformed. It had made been a massive embarrassment for both Bloomhouse and for Universal, and Jason Bloom was eager to avoid repeating that mistake again. That's a, even with, that's a weird comparison where you're going to do this entirely new IP and you're going to compare that not taking off in theaters while people are still nervous about COVID with this giant franchise at Halloween time was weird. Yeah. I mean, it, it is kind of interesting if you look at the box office numbers. Obviously, this is during the pandemic. Numbers are not directly comparable. The amount of people attending the cinema in 2021 was down dramatically from 2018, even 2019. So you can't do a like-for-like -like comparison in terms of, like, box office performance of Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills in 2021. But if you look relatively in terms of the overall box office for those years, domestic, worldwide, and try to figure out where these movies rank in those rankings, they rank relatively close. I believe Halloween 2018 was the 35th highest grossing movie of 2018, whereas Halloween Kills was the 39th highest grossing movie of 2021. So in a smaller pool, it performed comparatively well, I think, yeah. you could argue. The, the 2018 David Gordon Green Halloween wasn't just successful, it was abnormally successful. Yeah. And to set that as the baseline expectation for the Halloween franchise is absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. All right, They just don't make that much money. This was an event because 
you know, it looked like it was a return to Halloween's roots. It looked like you were going to get to see like a new Halloween, like a whole generation was going to have their own Halloween. They marketed it as an event, which is what you do. And it was successful, but there's no way in hell the sequel was going to pull $500 million or something. It's a slasher movie sequel. The whole point, the whole reason why that was such a huge hit in the 80s was minimal investment. And even if it's only moderately financially successful, it's nothing but profit. This was the whole Blumhouse business model, yeah. for crying out loud. Spend as little money as possible, and then if it doesn't make a lot of money, you at least break even. And if it does make a lot of money, it's nothing but net. With Halloween Gills, it was like, that it, that was considered a box office disappointment is, is madness to me. And honestly, even the people who claim like, oh, well, you know, Peacock really, you know, ate into that. Uh, have you actually looked at how successful Peacock is? It's losing billions of dollars. I assure you, a minor fraction of the audience actually subscribes to Peacock. It was not, I don't think, as, as much of a detriment as you might imagine. I do wonder, again, this is a separate discussion to have, but I do wonder if it's not so much people subscribing to Peacock, but there being an extremely easily rippable, super high-definition version of the movie released on the internet on the same day. If that is a potential concern. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, um, I feel like, yeah, I, I get depression just out there in the wild that people aren't going to cinemas or going to streaming. <laughs> and, and you're right, Darren, about about just kind of like that 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 if they can, they just go, they just uh, download illegally. I think I think that there's there's a bit of a, a a bubble that we're in sometimes as big movie fans, where we assume that everyone approaches not just the art form but the way they interact with that art form the same. And I think this is something that we see over and over again, where. It looks like online, everyone is talking about this movie, but the actual casual people who are just sort of occasionally dallying and going to see movies or renting movies, maybe isn't that obsessed with it. I know that piracy is an issue. Of course it is. But at the same time, I wonder if a movie series like, like a horror series like Halloween, where, yeah, they're the diehard horror fans, but a lot of that money was from the casuals. Oh, yeah. there's a Halloween movie and it's marketed as a big event. It's Halloween. Let's go. It's like uh, I was I was seeing people online talking about like oh the Nun two made how much money? Nobody's talking about it. It's not about hitting a diehard fan base super hard. It is about getting people who are interested in just seeing a movie this weekend to go to yep. a theater. And I'm not entirely sure that that audience of casuals is that obsessed with downloading everything online. I don't think they necessarily care that much. I know it's an issue, but I I wonder if sometimes we overstate the the especially with a mainstream movie like this. With a tiny movie with all, that's only ever going to reach a small audience, that can be death. But with a giant movie like this, I I wonder how many people really care when you can go to all the trouble of figuring what out what a codec <laughs> is or you can get a free trial on Peacock and then cancel it. Sure. Very fair. And I also think that it is worth acknowledging, like, as, as you alluded to, the subscriber base for many of these, you know, streaming services is not particularly great. Paramount Plus, Peacock, HBO slash Max, none of them really have any true market penetration. And so while, like, Project Popcorn was a disaster from the perspective of the studio with regards to promoting the streaming service, where its failure is a large part of why AT&T divested themselves of Warner Brothers because they couldn't get the vertical integration that they clearly wanted. 
it actually ended up accidentally counterintuitively being a huge boon for cinemas because releasing those movies simultaneously on streaming and in theaters meant they were being released in theaters at all at a point where other studios were holding back their releases. So mm. like Kong versus Godzilla, Mortal Kombat, I believe they outperformed Black Widow when it released in theaters. Uh, it gave these cinemas something to show during the pandemic at a time when there wasn't a lot of material. Mm. So it, it, you know, it did end up ironically boosting the box office in, in a grand sense, this dual release model, which is kind of interesting and, and unintentional. And I, I do also think that you're entirely right. Like the 2018 Halloween was an event. We talked last week about like how great it was to have Jamie Lee Curtis at the lighthouse for the Irish premiere of it. You know, reprising the role for the first time since, what, 1981, I think it was? It was just a seismic cultural event, and the idea of bringing her back, you know, three years later and then another year after that was never going to replicate the success. Well, it wasn't 81, it was the 90s. You're right, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed. It, it was Halloween H2O until Lesser said Resurrection. Completely yeah. forgot about H2O and Resurrection. It's my fault, I, I fell for the continuity reboot, apologies. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't happen. It's true. It's true about horror, though. Like, there, you're always going to have that Friday night crowd. Like, I'd go to the cinema every single week, regardless of how many other movies I'm watching. And The Nun 2, Saw X, talked to me. Three very, very different horror movies. I didn't like any of them. They were all packed. Packed out. And that's not... Those aren't horror fans. Those are people who are like, I want to watch a scary movie on a Friday night. Ironically, and, those are horror fans, but they're just, they wouldn't call themselves that, you know? Sorry, yeah. yes. <laughs> sorry, no judgment. <laughs> That's not me being an elitist. No, it's fine. Yeah. I, just, I just think they, they're, they're going to the movie. I mean, clearly they're interested, but they just don't, they don't have a subscription to Fangoria, you know? Yeah, it's, a, it's sorry, you're right. It's a different kind of horror fan. I always say there's a difference between the Friday night horror fans and the horror fans who watch everything, regardless of, you. like, they have to find it. They don't care. They'll watch it whatever way they can. But yeah, those are the people who make that money, definitely. And it is worth noting that Halloween Kills, as a sequel to a massively successful movie from a couple of years prior, did have a relatively inflated budget by Bloomhouse standards. We talked, you mentioned it and we talked about it last week. The Bloomhouse procedure was always we greenlight automatically at 5 million and we will stretch to 10 at, as the absolute limit. Here, I think Halloween Kills stretched to about 15 or 20 million dollars. So it was still hugely, hugely profitable uh, for everybody involved uh, with the money that it made. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that like it came out and it got a kind of, I guess, a very strong critical reaction against it, which I think is kind of interesting and maybe is something to talk about with regards to what you mentioned about like Halloween 2018 and what we talked about it last week being a crowd pleaser, mm. being an event movie, feeling like a kind of a triumphant um, kind of like a narrative that people wanted to invest in. As you said, like the idea that it is Laurie Strode's story and it gives Laurie a sense of closure and progress and satisfaction resolution. Um, what do you, what do you make of the reaction to Halloween kills? The critical reaction. Who are we talking to? Anyone, anyone, anyone. Okay. I'll, I'll say it right now. I think that there is. Yeah. There's this really frustrating thing that happens with a lot of horror movies, and I mean a lot of horror movies. Some of the best horror movies of all time that are sort of universally accepted as great movies now, where when they come out, people are pissed for some reason. And I, I think that there is a weird general vibe from, and, and I don't mean this derogatorily, I just mean like when I say mainstream critics, 
I mean, people who don't emphasize the horror genre, people who don't focus on it, people who watch a lot of everything and only review horror sometimes. And horror is like the cockroaches in Mimic. It's like, if you only check in once in a while, you'll see like they've made this like huge leaps. But if you're actually following it along, you'll see that it just evolves very, very rapidly. These movies are made very quickly. They're not in development for 10 years. And as a result, they go through cycles really, really fast. Uh, a critic might get really, really exhausted with a horror movie trend a lot faster than audiences will because, mm. yeah, in the last two years, I've seen 15 found footage horror movies and a typical audience member have seen maybe two or three. So I'm noticing the tropes and you're not. Um, but there's this weird thing where, like, I feel like some people think that, like, this sort of iconic sort of er example of a character like Michael Myers is sort of the natural state of it and that to uh, uh, deviate from that is frustrating and annoying when in actuality if you look at the majority of these slasher movie franchise deviation is the norm uh, almost every great slasher movie franchise is constantly reinventing itself and trying weird things and usually being rejected in the moment and then only appreciated again years later uh, you know you'll have defenders of Friday the 13th 5 now but at the time people were mad well you mentioned uh, Halloween 3 is like the, the your example that Rob yeah. Zombie Halloween 2 Perfect which we've had the argument about on this podcast yeah, yeah. My, my my podcast co-host Whitney Seibold has this expression which is uh, uh, trash plus time equals culture <laughs> and the the things that we consider kind of disposable or, or even that we uh, complain about have a tendency to sort of linger and then become something that we take for granted and the fact is, David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy is actually very closely following the template of the first three Halloween movies the total. There's this first one that is very simple, that is very direct, that is just focusing on establishing the boogeyman. And then you have the follow-up takes place later that night. It is about uh, the chaos. It is about following up with Laurie Strode. And then the third one is a different thing about a guy who finds about like masks that turn out to be evil and stuff as if they kind of literalize it in Halloween three and make it part of the series. These are not deviations. These are not strange things. And I really, I understand the animosity towards Halloween ends because I don't think Halloween ends particularly works. I think they took a big swing and I don't think they connected, but with Halloween kills, I don't understand what you wanted. What did you want that you're not getting from this movie? It has tons of Michael Myers mayhem. It has an exploration of Haddonfield that is far more complete than any other movie in this series that I actually really admire and think works. Um, it's incredibly like brutal and violent. If that's your kind of vibe, it's it's maybe the most like gross Halloween movie, even more than like the the Rob Zombie one. Um this is just, like, I understand that, like, you can find elements of the plot kind of repetitive. Like, oh, the other people of Haddonfield are, like, they're swept up in mass hysteria. And I'm like, it's about fear. What? Why are you rejecting that? I understand, like, they overplay the evil dies tonight. They say it one too many times. I get <laughs> that. But it makes sense. It's valid. It builds on the iconography of, of Michael Myers. I literally, I, I, when people complain about this one, I am totally baffled. I understand it not being your favorite. I don't understand the rejection of it. 
way I understand the rejection of some other films in this franchise. Can I maybe, again, this is maybe something to say for a later conversation. We talk about the specifics of this movie, but I do, my gut feeling was, A, it's the moment in which it arrived. Mm. Where, like, because everyone was like, man, this is really heavy-handed commentary on, like, COVID and January, you know, January 6th. And it's like, no, it was written and filmed long before those things happened. And so it ends up feeling like this weird ham-fisted allegory for events that had not occurred yet. But I, I do yes, also that time it was. I do also wonder if it's also a reaction against like the Halloween 2018, which I saw with a crowd. I, it, it's one of the great cinema experiences uh, I have had. I saw it at the premiere and it was just electric and it gives people what they want. It, it's a very satisfying, crowd pleasing movie in that like it gives you that story for Laurie, this story of a woman overcoming her trauma, confronting her tormentor and like having a confrontation that resolves in the context of that movie in a way that is fully satisfying. Whereas Halloween Kills is like almost intentionally designed to deny you that. And I, I think that's what makes it great. That's what mm. I, I really like about mm. the movie, not to tip my hand. But I do wonder mm. if you're a film critic, you look at this and you go, that's not doing what was good about the last one. Sorry, Willem. Well, no, no, it's fine. And, and there's a, there's actually this uh, movie that I, I think about a lot when I think about how Halloween Kills sort of reframes that conversation. Uh, and that's actually Terminator 3, a movie which I defend more than most people. It's got problems, but I, I admire it for what it does because the issue with the first two Terminator movies is that they're a bootstrap paradox. They are a recurrence of events. They're actually like defiantly not capable of launching a movie franchise. It's a miracle that Terminator 2 works. And they're all about Sarah Connor and John Connor and how it's all about them and everything is revolving around them. And the point of Terminator 3 was to show that if this bootstrap paradox hadn't occurred, Skynet still would have risen. It actually fixes this really, ingeniously fixes this whole timeline. But people were mad that it wasn't about them anymore. It, does, it felt like it was moving away from this core thing. And you saw that again when like Dark Fate came out and people were mad that at the beginning of that yes, movie, they, very first yeah. scene, they brought back John Connor for one scene to kill him. It's because they, some people think that a franchise is only about like they, this one character. And some of them are like, you, it would be very difficult to do like a fourth before sunset movie where Celine and Jesse are killed at the beginning and we just move on. Like that wouldn't really work. But with Halloween, I think I, I blame the first film actually for Halloween kills sort of disappointing people on that front. Because again, the raison d'etre of that Halloween was to remove the idea that it was all about Laurie Strode from the beginning. And then they wrote a storyline that made it all about Laurie Strode because you had that yeah. one doctor who was obsessed with getting them back together. Yeah. That doctor is like a, a, a development executive saying, yes, I know she's not his sister, but also it has to entirely <laughs> revolve around that rematch. And Halloween Kills is all about if Laurie Strode had never entered into it, this is what it would have been like. He would have just kept going on a spree. That's what it would have been. It would have been a story of Haddonfield not Laurie Strode. For me, that's a perfectly natural extension of what Halloween is and always was. And it's only when you assume that Laurie Strode has to be the center of it that you say to yourself, hey, Laurie isn't in this very much. And she's not about her. And she doesn't get a scene with Michael. And they never confront each other. Well, that, that, that hasn't, I understand that can be disappointing if that's what you expect. But again, for me, I think expectation, and especially anticipation, are sort of the enemy of critical discourse because you're comparing the movie you get to whatever you had imagined in your head. 
And that's not always a fair comparison. In fact, it's usually an unfair comparison. So unless it hits exactly what you want, any defiance of that, even if it's good, is going to meet with at least the temptation to initially reject it. And then it's only years later after we just come to accept, well, that's what the movie is, that we can sort of look at it and appreciate it for what it is or not. But there's a reason why so many horror movies are reevaluated later and declared at least underrated, if not classics. Sorry, Andrew, you look like you want to say something. I think. Sorry about that. No, no. Oh, no, I, I, I was going to say, like, I, I, I guess that is because of how compelling Jamie Lee Curtis is. Yeah, that's in, a good argument. In the first Halloween. And and that's, nobody could have uh, expected that. Like, she, she's just such a revelation that she becomes central to the franchise and that the other movies then suffer from her, her, her absence, even the ones she's in. Yes. And, and that maybe this... For not centering us in her is similar to feel to uh, um, Halloween two, for some of the fi- fans of that performance, and maybe of of um, of Halloween eighteen, and of H two O, they're kind of getting their fix and maybe feeling like they don't get it here. Yeah. So I understand that, but but I going back to kind of what 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 William said earlier, it's. You do have to take a movie on its own terms, and this this um, uh, is what it is, rather than something that you uh, want it to be. I understand why people wanted it to be that thing, though. To be clear, I mean, I if that is what the criticism is, I think like to Green's credit, um, I think he makes he makes a conscious choice, and McBride has said it was a conscious choice on their part as writers, not to just make the same movie three times, which would be the obvious temptation to do in a situation like this, particularly when the first one was so successful. And like, I actually like the Green, there's a wonderful quote from Green talking to Starburst, Starburst magazine, where he says like, I learned what works about Halloween is its simplicity. And if we learned anything from the 2018 version, it's that bringing together Michael and Laurie in that kind of confrontation between good and evil is what makes it so compelling. And then I ignored all that and we turned that simplicity into a complex ensemble of chaos and took the theme of fear as it relates to that intimate connection between Laurie and Michael and we spun it out to permeate the entire community of Haddonfield. I love, I love that it was like from a filmmaker who's like cracked it the first time, hit it out in the park, audience loved it, and I'm like, what can we do that is interesting with this? What can we try now that we've done that? Like, it's a really great way to approach, I think, a franchise like this. Horror sequels are damned if they do and damned yeah. if they don't. If you keep doing yeah. the same thing over and over again, there will be people who are satisfied and people who are ticked off that you're doing the same thing over and over again. If you keep trying to add new elements or make it different in some way, people will be mad that you're not doing the same thing over and over again. And I think the sweet spot is you do it the iconic way, once, maybe twice. Yeah. You experiment for a couple of films, and then you go back to basics just to remind everyone, we know what works, we know you know, we know we that this still functions, but then we're going to spin off again. I think you just have to go back to basics once in a while to keep the series grounded and to make sure it, can, it maintains some kind of consistent identity because you do run the risk of losing that over time if you're not careful. Like that happened with the Hellraiser movies, for example, where... Um, the first two Hellraisers are very consistent in their portrayal of the mythology and the characters and the themes, and then three less so, four more so, and then you had this giant string of straight-to-video sequels where the majority were never even intended to be Hellraiser movies, and then they just slapped some Cenobites on them. And that really diluted 
the whole premise and it didn't feel right again. So when we finally got David Bruckner's reboot, which, you know, isn't amazing, but at least it felt like Hellraiser again. And it felt like such a return. But I wouldn't want that every single time either. You know, if you're going to keep going back to the well, you know, you want to like dump some cinnamon in the well or something and just like mm, different well water. This is a bad metaphor. <laughs> I regret making it. I did not think this out before I started my sentence, and now I'm just going to backtrack. The great cinnamon poisoner of of OA. Yeah, there you go, right? But like, yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, you you can't, you want to keep it different, but you also need to not lose sight of what made it work in the first place, and that's a balancing act, and you can't do it with every film. You're going to test the waters sometimes, right? With a bit of cinnamon. (laughs) Uh, Yes. But I think we've reached the point of what we could talk about before we start, like, spoiling the movie. So three questions before we jump into the spoiler zone to get us started. So, Joey, do you... Th- and again, as Andrew has pointed out, this is absurd that we kept the format while talking about the Halloween movies. <laughs> but, Joey, <laughs> do you think that Halloween Kills, the second installment of David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy, belongs on a list of either the best 250 or the worst 100 movies ever made? Well, because this is an absurd question... And because I always just only deal in horror movies, I'm going to say yes. I think all three of them belong on the 250 best horror movies. 100%. Okay, interesting. I think they're all they're all doing something really unique. Uh, they're all very special. And they're all great as standalone movies as well. And yeah, I think they definitely belong on there. And I think the reaction from critics and from horror fans was actually pretty embarrassing at the time. Mm-hmm. Especially from the critical side. And like that, we saw this again with Saw X because... Ron Tomatoes ugh, has broadened to in- to include more people, which is great. It also means that things like this are skewed because horror critics are always going to treat this stuff differently. And there are people who think that Halloween Kills is some sort of mistake and should never have happened, but think the Saw 10 is a masterpiece. And Well, I mean, it- tastes differ, doctors differ, and patients die. Like, people just like different things, I would counter. Well, but again, saw. But I no, I think it's more than that. From a horror perspective, Mm -hmm. it's more than that. There are people who think that this is a blight on the franchise, and as William said, that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that people went so hard against this. And I'm not talking mainstream fusty critics who are like, I've seen too many. I'm talking about horror fans, like you know what I mean. They they sounded like Marvel stands. Like that's not what he's supposed to look like. That's not what he's supposed to do. Like, what are you talking about? Agreed. <laughs> Basically. And, I, and I'll say this about Saw 10, and I think one of the reasons why Saw 10, and I like Saw 10 fine, but I think the reason why that became, like, the most, like, highly reviewed mm, yeah. Saw movie, I think, ever at this yeah, point, is. Yeah. is because it did the David Gordon Green thing. It went back to basics. It kept it simple. It kept it direct. It felt kind of like a, more of like a righteous justice kind of vengeance movie, which is ironically very simplistic for a saw film but a lot of people were like oh i remember now (laughs) and now they're being kind because again trash plus time equals culture and now it feels like we're going back to the oh this is what made saw great didn't you (laughs) lambast like every movie in this series what happened time that's what happened well also also there is the fact that i think joey mentioned that the base at rotten tomatoes has broadened yes um, which is generally good it's more diverse it's it's including more diverse voices but it's also people who like grew up on on that trash yes people who were like 18 you know 13 14 15 watching saw on video on demand or dvd or whatever and now it's something that they have that attachment to and they maybe don't have the critical faculties to differentiate between i like this and this is good do you know what i mean i love queen of the damned that's not a good movie 
That movie's a piece of shit. It doesn't make any sense. I love it. But I, you know what I mean? And I've written pieces defending it. But if I had to go and review that movie, I wouldn't be going, oh my God, this is the greatest movie ever. You know what I mean? I think that's well, a side of it too. I could probably make an argument for it. but Just because the soundtrack is so good. But... It is a great you're, movie. Yeah. You're slowly talking yourself into it. I am. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I guess it is a great movie. Joey from One Minute Ago was wrong. Um. <laughs> I mean, I love it, but I'm not saying it's a great movie. All right, it is. Okay, fine. It is a great movie. You make a good case, me. Um, I mean, my, my critical philosophy is that people say, like, oh, what's a movie that, like, you're gu- you feel guilty about? And None. I, I don't, None. actually, because... If I like it, there's a reason, and it's literally my job as a film critic to be able to explain what that is. You may disagree, and it might not necessarily mean I love it, but there's some element there that is connecting with me, and therefore it did something right. Maybe it was even by accident. By God, it did something right. But to answer your question, is uh, does this belong in the top 250 or the bottom 100? Uh, In terms of just movies in general, uh, no, (laughs) I've seen too many movies for that. Uh, In terms of the best horror movies... Maybe at the tail end of the top 250. Like, I do really, really love this movie a lot. This is absolutely one of my favorite Halloween movies, but there's like four Halloween movies I truly love. The original, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, especially the director's cut, Halloween H2O, and Halloween Kills. Those are my favorites. That makes me weird, I understand, but it's true. Oh, we we've discovered on this podcast that every Halloween fan is weird. Yeah, it, it's a unique. It's been a unique experience yeah. where everyone's like, everybody knows that everybody hates Halloween H two O, and then you get the ah bah 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 bah. Or the <laughs> every, it also it also it also hits one of my buttons, which is one of my favorite like sort of horror tropes is uh, when uh, the world descends into madness. Yeah, uh, and that's everything from like in the mouth of madness to needful things and. Um, and something about that always clicks with me because I think I just don't trust society. It feels like society is held on a handshake agreement and all that we really need to break that handshake agreement it's is for night. one person to get paranoid. Yeah, one bad night. Mm. So that's this for me is one of those movies that keys into that really, really effectively. So I, I really do. Uh, I love the pieces. Wouldn't have been on the top 250 ever. Maybe towards the tail end of the top 250 horror movies. That would, that, that That's more likely. Yeah, ju- just on on that, you mentioned the idea of like society falling apart and kind of like the idea that you like that horror. We we talked a bit last week about like the John Carpenterness of the the David Gordon Green Halloween movies, where obviously Carpenter like casts a really long shadow over the series, but it feels like the David Gordon Green 2018 Halloween is the first time since like Tommy Lee Wallace's Halloween Three that somebody tries to make a Halloween movie with the aesthetics of Carpenter. Mm. And yeah, and you know, I mean, that's largely down to the fact that like Carpenter's kind of circled back into fashion. In the 2010s, you had this reappraisal of him, this reassessment of him. But like, you look at how Gordon Green shoots the 2018 Halloween, and it's got a lot of the Carpenter aesthetic. You've got like the, the use of kind of steady cam. You've got a lot of kind of the, you know, the careful framing, the symmetrical framing, the use of depth in the shot, the stealth runners, the long takes, the clean, pristine aesthetic of it, the coldness of it, mm-hmm. all that stuff that looks like a Carpenter movie much more than, say, you know, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, Halloween 6, that sort of stuff. Even, you know, H2O, which was directed by Steve Miner, who was a Friday the 13th kind of guy. And I, I think Andrew mentioned last week that, like, Halloween Kills is a Halloween movie that Carpenter has mentioned in interviews 
having an extraordinary fondness for. It is, I believe, his favorite of the David Gordon Green trilogy. Sure. It is maybe one of his favorite of the Halloween sequels, allowing for Halloween 3. And I, and I think that gets to the thing that you mentioned there, William, which is this idea of societal collapse, which is, I think, like, one of my hot takes about this movie thematically is that Halloween Kills is the Halloween sequel that feels closest thematically to the work of John Carpenter. It feels most engaged with Carpenter's recurring preoccupations, where you look at Carpenter's films, and as much as Carpenter is a cool guy who smokes weed and plays Xbox a lot, Carpenter has this really cynical, depressing view of humanity, where throughout his films there's this idea that, as you say, civilization is a handshake agreement, where it's all going to fall apart at the first opportunity you give people an excuse and that excuse can be anything from the idea that we walled off the island of manhattan and turned it into a prison to there's a bunch of men in antarctica who are locked in the cold together and by the way there's also an alien among them that could look like any of them and human beings will descend into anarchy chaos and become their worst selves as a result of that the greatest threat is often you know not anything external or existential it's other human beings. You mentioned uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Obviously, that's a John Carpenter film about the breakdown of social order. Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, which includes, obviously, like, the thing In the Mouth of Madness and Prince of Darkness, is about this idea that, like, social collapse is the worst thing that could happen. Assault on Precinct 13 is about this idea of just, like, random gangs of youths who decide that the laws of society don't apply to them and so become murderous psychopaths. All of that stuff feels thematically of a piece with this movie, mm-hmm. and I find that really, really, really interesting. I, If you were to put a gun to my head, I would guess that's why Carpenter likes this movie so much. Yeah. But I, I really do think that this movie thematically is, is of a piece. It coheres with mm-hmm. Carpenter's larger worldview, and it feels like a reconciliation in some ways between Carpenter's larger filmography... And the Halloween franchise. And obviously you could argue then that like next week when we talk about Halloween ends, there's a little bit of Christine in there as well. Where, where, you know, where David Gordon Green isn't just making these Halloween movies as Halloween sequels. He's making them as homages to the guy who made Halloween and the aesthetic that informs Halloween. Mm. But uh, okay, so Andrew, what about yourself? You have just watched this movie for the first time. You are one step closer to completing this Halloween season, Halloween. Do you think that Halloween Kills belongs on a list of either the 250 greatest movies ever made or the 100 worst movies of all time? Uh, no, no. And, and I, I, prob- I probably ought to recuse myself from <laughs> like a list of the top 250 horror movies. <laughs> like, what do I know? But uh, but um, but I, I it's uh, it's uh, it's it's a good movie. It's on a list of good movies rather than a list of bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> However long uh, that list is, yeah, <laughs> except that. And and for myself, yeah, I I don't think I can justify putting this on the <laughs> list of like the two fifty greatest movies ever made. Move over, Citizen Kane. Halloween Kills is here. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it does pass the help smell test, which is like the help is currently on the IMDb two fifty, and if. Halloween kills replace oh, the help today. I would is, not be sad. Is, the 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 help isn't a Halloween movie though. No, that's that's, um, that's yeah. No. Um and and no. so so yeah, that's my cheat answer to the question. Although it does, although Octavia Spencer is in both is in both. Yes, this is true. true. She's in that's true. So you Halloween can imagine too. that like her character in Halloween 2 is like a descendant me. <laughs> uh, what 
there is like yeah there was a while where octavia spencer just played nurses like where she would pop up on like episodes of tv where she would be wearing the same wardrobe that she had worn in like halloween too she's a, she's one of those like great hard-working actors who was like literally working constantly like oh she's a security guard and legally blonde too weird and then like only later when she finally got some real breakout roles thanks to the help you know at least we got that um She's fantastic, and she's gotten bigger roles. She's been Oscar-nominated multiple times. Great for her. But, like, she's one of those people where, like, you go back, and they're, yeah. the first, like, 100 credits on IMDb <laughs> is, like, walk-ons. Mm. Yeah. She, yeah. Because they were just a hard-working actor, you know? She's a real hidden figure. Hi, oh, well played. Well hey. played, Andrew. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's oh, brace one. yourself, William. Yeah. Brace yourself. It's, it's only getting started. And No, no. Anyone who's, seen, anyone who's heard my podcast know I'm, I'm as bad at that as I <laughs> like, um, And... Joey, would this be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? Yes, 100%. It's all it's all horror movies. <laughs> and how do you rank this like in terms of the Halloween franchise, in terms of like the Green Trilogy? Because I know you're a huge booster of the Green Trilogy, the hollow green movies, as you call them. <laughs> um, yes. It's, how does this rank in, in that set of movies? I find it so hard to rank them because I love them all so much. Ooh. I don't know. They're all, they're all kind of on an even feel for me. But then when I watch one again, and then obviously when I watch them all in one go, I don't know. Like there's an argument to be made that this is the best one of the trilogy. But then Halloween Ends is so bizarre and so strange. And I just really respect it for going balls to the wall crazy. Uh, so answer your question, I don't know. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, and, and William, just your personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies. Is there any... I mean that's that's a ridiculous question like i when you like get right down to it you say to yourself oh sure and then you actually like write it down and you realize that like my two my top 250 is actually like my top 1000 so uh yeah, probably not in my top 250 of all time or anything like that but i do love it to pieces that's no knock against anything some of the best movies ever made are not in my 250 um and andrew what about yourself i get the sense we already know the answer but just checking in <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it, it's it it's not on my two fifty. I think I've said that I have obviously resur resurrect resurrection is <laughs> Halloween <course>. resurrection is canonically <laughs> yeah, Andrew's favorite course, Halloween yeah, movie yeah. since it was described <laughs> no, to him. No, <laughs> no but um, Halloween, um, the 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 seventy eight one, um, in term in in terms of uh, the Halloween, I would put Halloween eighteen. In in front of it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I I kind of even though I get that like it it's not made uh, post kind of January sixth or that the the um I feel like it's still kind of after a lot of those sorts of kind of um, Charlottesville and stuff uh, like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The unite the right and all that kind of thing. And and that and that maybe it is a bit kind of heavy handed. In a way that people um, uh, kind of picked up on, I don't think that's a problem with the movie, but 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 I but I think it's very different to um, uh, to to twenty eighteen, and 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 I, I I thought twenty eighteen was was a great simple movie. I do agree that you don't want to just make the same movie twice, um, but it didn't hit for me as much. That that baseball bat shattered, unfortunately. Old Huckleberry. Old Huckleberry, yeah. But it's good. Yeah. 
Um, for myself, probably not. I think this is, if I'm ranking the Halloween movies, this ranks fourth. So it comes in ahead of Halloween 2018. It ranks behind, obviously, the original and behind Season of the Witch and behind Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Um, but I think that's a very comfortable place to be sitting. And I think what I like about this movie is it actually scares me, um, which mm. is great. Like for a horror movie, like why do you watch a horror movie? What do you want to watch a horror movie for? And a lot of people will say they watch it to enjoy it. Like it, it's a popcorn film. You go and you see it and you sit down and it's an enjoyable experience. I like a horror movie that unsettles me and makes me feel uncomfortable. And this really does that because I'm not necessarily scared in like 2023 of a man with a butcher knife and a mask coming into the house and brutally murdering me. The golden age of serial killers is behind us to a certain extent. Um, that fear feels somewhat outdated. I am scared, as William pointed out, of the idea that the social contract is just an illusion and a lie that we tell ourselves, and that under the smallest amount of pressure, human beings will turn on one another and become basically a, a mob of animals looking for something to blame you're, or kill or destroy. You're afraid of the children who live on your street. <laughs> I, I am terrified of the children who live on my street. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're going to they're gonna break into my house and steal candy. That's the problem. Yeah, like, if they're anything like the kids in this, the kids in this are all assholes. Even the 1978 kids are like dicks. <laughs> It's that Julian asshole from the first one. Aww, I love <laughs> the asshole from across the street. Yeah, it's oh, an asshole kid from the street. Um, but like, yeah, I, I, this does unsettle me, and it does get under my skin, and it does make me uncomfortable. And like, if I'm watching a horror movie, isn't that kind of what I want? Don't I kind of want a sure. horror movie that makes me squirm in my seat? Absolutely. And I think more than most of the other Halloween movies, this does that and it does it effectively all right and then final question so if listeners have not already seen halloween and halloween kills would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device whether they have access to peacock or not joe <laughs> absolutely you know what i'm gonna say though watch all three watch the trilogy and get the whole the whole picture have you watched the extended cut of this actually just out of curiosity oh yes i have the okay. blu-ray so <laughs> i have indeed <laughs> Do you have a preference between the two as a, as the hologreen expert of the of the four of us? Funnily enough, when I watched this last night, I thought I was watching the extended cut. And then when it got to the end, I realized it wasn't. I like them both. Um, obviously, they kind of cheated because one of the shots from yeah. the extended cut was in the trailer. So a lot of people were like, why didn't we see that? Um, but look, the original cut, it ends, you know, on that kind of, well, no, no spoilers, but it ends on a kind of a sad note. And it's, you know, it's kind of hopeless so the extended cut ends on a more triumphant note. Having said that, if you're going into Halloween ends, the yeah. normal cut makes a little bit more sense because yes. the extended cut kind of ends with Laurie like starting out of the hospital. A starting. promise of something that Halloween ends it just kind of yeah. is not interested in doing. Because it skips ahead, which is completely fine and makes sense. Mm. Um, but so if you watch them all in one go, then yeah, stick with the regular cut. But the extended cut is fun. It has like him breathing down the phone and her being like, Michael. So that's a fun little nod. <laughs> uh, and and William, what about yourself? If listeners have not watched Halloween Kills, would you recommend? Yes, you should see Halloween mm -hmm. Kills. If you've been turned off by some of the negative commentary, see it for yourself. Watch it, not as a Laurie Strode story, but as a Haddonfield yes. story. I think yeah. you get a lot Absolutely. out of it. Um, I, I'm, I'm torn on whether the extended or the theatrical or, or the original uh, is better. Um, I think the extended cut is mostly really, really great, but I don't think the ending works yeah. because 
they wrote that they they shot that ending in case clearly they decided to make the third one like take place later that same mm-hmm. night yeah like to actually just make it all like one wild and crazy night and they clearly decided at some point after shooting that ending that no there's going to be a break in time and we're going to cut to sometime later and where the story goes and where Laurie Strode's personality goes are totally yeah. different things. It does not connect at all. And it's really frustrating because I've seen like David Gordon Green refer to this as it's my director's cut, but it has an ending that isn't canon. Then it's not your, del- what are you, what? What are we supposed to do with that? Come on, give us a bone here. So the other end, the ending would work fine if it led into a different movie, but it doesn't. So uh, I, overall, if you just want to see like, the most effective movie as a whole, I would say the original cut is the one to see, but the extended cut is certainly worth watching as well if you remember that that ending is a lie and a tease for something that will never happen. And also, I think it, it's good they have the courage of their convictions to just leave Laurie lying in the hospital. I know a lot yeah. of people had a problem. They were like, oh, she was sidelined. She was sidelined. I don't see it that way. So yeah, the the other ending, if, if they're kind of going back on that, which I also don't really like. You know, like, let her just stay in hospital and yeah. recover. You don't need to have this big moment. The extended cut kind of looks like it's like, look, guys, we got this one weird Halloween movie out of our system. Yes. We promise you the third movie in this set is going to be Laurie versus Michael again. Everything you love from 2018, mm-hmm. we're bringing it back. Got to be like 90 <laughs> minutes of a knockdown, drag yeah. out, Laurie versus Michael fight. And no, we're going to we're gonna tack that on right at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, like. I, the- I feel like I'm 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 the fool that that's made for. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah finally, this movie's over. I want to see Lori. The real movie's starting. Yeah, yeah. and punches the air. I was excited. Like, finally, we got there, baby. I do love that they also end up like last week. I referenced it. Um, I have apparently watched the extended cut of Halloween Kills so often that I assumed that ending was the ending to the theatrical cut. Because last week I referenced that Halloween Kills has the exact same closing image as the 2018 Halloween, which is the slow zoom in on a freeze frame of a knife in a woman's hand. And it was only when I was watching the theatrical cut for this discussion, I was like, oh no, no, no. The theatrical (laughs) cut has a completely different ending that has a completely different point. And it's like, oh yeah. Like, I, I will... Andrew said he is the fool for whom that movie's made. I was the fool who went to Halloween Ends and felt like I had been cheated because I had most recently watched the extended cut of Halloween <laughs> Kills. I was like, I think I know what this movie's going to be. Um, right. And and my whole thing about how like anticipation can like really hurt a movie, they did that to themselves yes, this time. Yeah. In all fairness, at least when it comes to Ends. At least when it comes to Ends, you release this the, this cut, you said it was an extended cut, the implication was it was a director's cut, and Green referred to it as that. And your posters for ends are also like Michael and Laurie standing back to back. Yeah, you. And again, marketing is sometimes also the enemy of the movie. They want to get butts in seats, mm-hmm. but they don't care if you like it afterward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a you've handed over your money. Yeah, bait and switch. Yeah, cinema scores. We we talk a lot about those in the industry sometimes, but all they are is they just ask you after you've seen the movie, did you get what you came for? Mm-hmm. And if you came for something that was a lie because the marketing misled you in some way, of course you're going to be pissed, but it doesn't mean the movie is bad. So in this, but in this one though, because of this extended cut in particular, it really did feel like they were building to something that Halloween ends absolutely was not. And frankly, that should have been a deleted scene on the DVD. I agree. I agree with you. I don't think that ever should have been put in there. And Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream Halloween Kills? I'm guessing the theatrical cut. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I would. I would say that it's a better version of Halloween Two. I mean, it it almost goes without saying that for if, if if you're watching Halloween, like Darren said, you're kind of going to it to be obsessed. So, like you, you know, there, there, it it feels almost redundant to say like there, 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 there are things that in this movie that you might be they, um, uh, they're they're I find unsettling exactly, or there are trigger warnings that we 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 could go into, and 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 themes, but yeah, it it's 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 an upsetting movie. It it's a it if if I feel like there is a lot of. It's funny actually because these later movies don't feel like they trade as much on the kind of the the terror or the anticipation of the kill and that a lot of it is to do with the like brutality of it and the gore. Uh, Andrew, I have notes in the spoiler zone about this. I I want to talk about this, but yes, go on. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 there there will be fans of horror. Like I think in the Halloween part of it was just that they didn't that he didn't have money. But um, you're right. <laughs> um, yeah, because we've seen other Carpenter movies. Of course, <laughs> he, he, he's not shy about gore. But it's, it's um, but it's so, like the shark yeah. in Jaws. Like the fact that he couldn't show it was because sure. the shark kept breaking, and that ended up being iconic. And it's the same thing with Halloween. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It might not have been intentional, so that it, but it worked. And if that's what you want, then kind of the some of these later movies can feel like a disappointment, but they're not. They're, they're a different thing. They're and, modern and, as well, and, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is an there is an expectation, and I, I I suppose like and it's a sequel. Yes, so you have to up the ante. Yeah, Carnage Candy, Andrew. Carnage Candy. Yeah, and it has it has to be every like ten or fifteen minutes ha. as well. There's not enough kills. It's called Halloween kills. <laughs> People had a problem with that too. People were like, "There are too many kills." It's called Halloween kills. It's not uh, called Halloween. At that point, I don't even know what you want anymore. Yeah, I really seriously, don't. Like, it's not called Halloween hugs. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like come Michael on. Myers sits down and talks through his issues with a therapist. It's like that's that's. <laughs> I mean, I pay to see that movie, but that's not a slasher movie. That's a different yeah. vibe, you know. <laughs> um, and and for myself, yes, I absolutely recommend it. Again, I this... hugged him six times. Six times. Six times. Did he kill? Six Did times. he kill again? Did he hug again? Um, but <laughs> to to Andrew Andrew's point, like this is what I was talking about last week when we had that discussion. I was like, Halloween twenty eighteen is a Halloween movie. I think you can watch if you are squeamish. Mm. Like if you are like you're horror curious, mm. you want to dip your toe in the water, uh, but I... you're not. It is it is graphic in some places, like there's the stomping scene and all that sort of stuff as well. Well, again, but, uh, Andrew's okay. the best, but, the, but Andrew's the best person to ask about that because he's the biggest newbie to horror. Did you find this one less upsetting than Rob Zombie's Halloween too? Well, no podcasters get killed. Yeah, so worse and better. <laughs> <laughs> all right, because I I even I found this more viscerally unpleasant than Halloween 2018. Oh, it is. It is 100%. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I don't yeah. think any... Yeah, they're definitely up in the end. But I don't think any horror newbies yeah. are going to go for this one. I think you're right. They're going to go for the first one and probably find it mostly okay. Um. All right, then. With that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! Just... Get on the zone! Spoiler zone! Spoiler zone! <laughs> um, I don't... 
I don't know if you guys if you have AutoZone where you are, but that's a radio ad we have over here. Get in the zone, AutoZone. Oh, damn, like that's that. catchy. <laughs> yeah. I want to go. Baron Mooney, he's the movie <laughs> might guy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and great. Now, now we're going to replace the uh, Danger Zone single with the AutoZone jingle. Um, <laughs> William, what is Halloween Kills about for you? Halloween Kills. That's a that's a good question, and and I, I've kind of already alluded to it. I feel as though Halloween Kills fulfills the promise that they actually made in David Gordon Green's first Halloween movie, which is that it's no longer just about the relationship between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. This is about the relationship between Michael Myers and Hatfield. This is about the way that it, that a tragic event can taint an entire community. And hurt it multi- over the course of multiple generations. And what happens when that finally comes to a head? Uh, yeah, I've seen that in my own life. I come from a town where really bad things have happened. And it really, you know, like Halloween was ruined for many, many years because of this really big tragedy. Um, and so I, I, I connect with that on like a, on a, on a certain level. But I, yeah, I think that this is just the absolute promise of Halloween, where if, if, you, if this franchise had never gotten distracted by how great Jamie Lee Curtis is, and it's hard to blame the franchise for doing that, but if it had never just become the Jamie Lee Curtis show, either because she's the lead or because she's conspicuously absent, uh, this is it. This is what Michael would have done. This is what Michael was actually interested in. Um yeah, I, I I really do think that this is one of the ultimate Halloween movies because it, it it explores Michael Myers as an infectious idea, not just an idea that affects his victims. Yeah, I I mentioned earlier that like this is possibly John Carpenter's favorite Halloween sequel. He's got good taste. Mm-hmm. And we talked last week about how he he does actually seem to like the David Gordon Green. Halloween trilogy. Oh, um, I and I think they do tap into that original 1978 thing, which was the fear that Michael could come from anywhere, mm. that any kid could be Michael Myers, that he could show up randomly. You are in this space that you think is safe, where you think you're protected. And I think like Danny McBride's big argument for removing the Laurie Strode sister connection was that it made his violence less random and less yep. scary, where it's yep. like, I'm not his yep. brother. I'm not in danger. Why am I worried about my- yep. Michael Myers? If that's 100% true. And that's why Michael Myers is so scary in the first movie, because you don't know why he's doing what he's doing. He is just doing it. And this could actually be the yeah. ultimate Halloween movie if you make that argument, because he's so relentless. He's just killing, killing, killing. He's not trying to get anywhere. He's not trying to get to her. He's not trying to do anything. They make it very, very clear. Anyone who thinks that is wrong <laughs> and is, you know, being stupid, um, which is great to see, I think. But this is, yeah, the ultimate distillation of Michael Myers, you know? Well, it's a very firm rejection of Halloween 2. Like, again, it Andrew is. mentions that this is... Andrew and I think William both mentioned that this is remaking Halloween 2. It's another movie where it's continuing on the same night from the previous film. Laurie has been taken to hospital. There are mobs roving around Haddonfield. Uh, they're on the lookout for Michael Myers. And this is just an explicit rejection of what Halloween 2 does to the franchise. Oh, sorry, William. No, no, I was, I was just going to say to that, and going back to our previous point, why some people felt kind of betrayed by it, um, it's almost that Last Jedi thing, where if you make a explicit assumption that this is what this thing has to be, 
then any attempt to reframe that feels like a personal attack if you define yourself by your love of the thing. Yeah. So I love Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker did something in a new movie that I personally don't like, ergo, rather than accept that and try to sort of evolve with the series, I can only reject it. And I think some people were mad that Halloween kills. Even if you accept that Laurie isn't Michael's uh, sister, you reject that she's not the center of it. Yes. Yeah. Even though it's much more interesting as a result. I it's agree. much more interesting. It's much richer. We see so much more of Haddonfield. We get so much, you know, it's so much about the aftermath as well, which I really, really love. Because they haven't, I mean, Rob Zombie did a little bit in Halloween too and very well, I thought. But you get, you know, like I genuinely, I cry at the scene when she's washing her ring. Yeah. And then she yes. sits in the room and she's cry. Like, seriously, I just, I think that's such a beautiful shot. It's such a simple shot, but it's dawning on her that her husband is dead. Um, what is she going to, yeah. what is she going to do now? Just so, so many slasher movies take place over such a short amount of time. Yes. The characters don't really have an opportunity to grieve. Yes. They're still in mid panic. The adrenaline's hitting them. And, you know, what I love about, one of the things I love about Rob Zombie's Halloween too, is that it's so much about people just overcoming the, the psychological scars that were left over from what was really a very brief, but very shocking event. Mm. Um, and here, because we were sort of expanding on the night, letting the night actually like really. They have to its conclusion. Because I'm like, Halloween 2 introduced a whole bunch of new characters yeah. who weren't there. Yeah, and we didn't care. Like all those people in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're just doing their own thing. I, I, I literally do not care about most of those characters. But here, because sure. we're, we're following over with more of the characters, mm. like we get the, the cop whose daughter died in Halloween 2, and that part's really powerful. But yeah, here, most of the characters have a connection to it. And as a result, we get to really expand on what this means to them on multiple levels. It's more powerful. Well, can I, like, one, and you mentioned the idea of, like, the, the Luke Skywalker isn't the center of the universe thing and, La and Laurie Strode isn't the center of the universe thing. What I love about this movie is, and it's from the opening credits, the opening credits, which are, like, the classic pumpkin. Mm. Here, it's, there are multiple pumpkins. Yes. Everybody has their own pumpkin. And what I love... Well, it's 12 because there are 12 movies. Oh, I never knew Oh, that. I never realized that. Um... How yeah, nerdy. <laughs> that is fantastic. What I love about it, though, is that it kind of gets at this idea of, like, we watched Laurie's story. From Laurie's perspective, her night with Michael Myers was the most formative experience of her life. She is the heroine of that narrative, and we have followed that narrative. And what I really like... To M. Bison, it was Tuesday. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, I love that for... Halloween kills what Green does is he introduces all these other characters who also think that they're the protagonist of a Halloween movie mm -hmm. all these characters yeah, well, Patton's like it's all on me it's all my fault exactly yeah. yes oh, he's so yeah. great that, that, that's like Hawkins wakes up it's like he has to die and I'm gonna be the one who does it and they have like the moment where like Tommy runs to Laurie's room and it's like look don't worry you protected me all those years ago tonight I'm going to protect you. And you have Lonnie, yeah. who's like, he scared me all those years ago. Mm. I'm going to show him. You have this idea of these characters who all think that they are the protagonist of a Halloween movie. Like, that they're, they've been stewing for like 40 years, waiting for the moment where they will have their climactic moment like Laurie did in Halloween 2018. And the movie just goes, no, none of this matters. Brackish as well, yeah. What, sorry? Sorry, Andrew? Brackish as well, and, yeah. and Lindsay. Yeah. 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 Well, she well, yeah. she asked and, to come back. She didn't like. She didn't realize cool. that that was an option, which I thought was awesome. She went to the premiere and said, yeah. "Like, why didn't you call me?" 
And they were like, yeah. we didn't realize. <laughs> I, I find that interpretation so harrowing, though. The idea that nobody is the protagonist in their own story. That there comes a point where death, chaos, or just a sense that there is a larger macro narrative that it at most tangentially involves you. Just, it undermines the ego. So yeah. many people have this like really pronounced ego. And I have this like extreme insecurity that like kind of prevents me from thinking of myself as my own, as the protagonist of my own story. So maybe it hits me in a different way. But so many people, it's like, oh my God, I, I associate with Luke Skywalker. So to see that like Luke Skywalker did something that like, oh, he was kind of tempted to the dark side for one second. I'm like, oh God, what does that say about me? <laughs> and at Halloween, because it's so explicitly about terror, I think you should have more free reign to get away with that. The idea of making you uncomfortable is part and parcel of this. Yeah. Like, I love that, like, all of the, many of these characters have, like, their big moment where they show up to Michael and they say their catchphrase. They say the thing, like, like, the thing where, like, at the end of the previous movie, it's like, what does she say? It says, welcome, happy Halloween, Michael, before she smashes him and throws him in the fire. Like, yeah. Bracket has the, hello, Michael, it's Halloween everyone's entitled to one good scare. You have the moment where like yeah. Marion Chambers is like, this is for Dr. Loomis. And you have the moment where even like <laughs> Karen, Karen replays her gotcha moment from the previous movie. And like, while like Jamie Lee Curtis's moment and Karen's gotcha moment from the previous moment were like, the audience punches the air and Michael gets what's coming to him. And the protagonist stands triumphant here in Every single instance, like that moment, is just a prelude to them dying horribly. Yep, brutal. When you when you when you center your franchise around like a hero character, and most horror movies don't do this. Most horror movie franchises, at least after the initial film or two, center around the villain. Yeah, so that the protagonists can be more disposable, and you you can actually defeat them. But when you center around like protagonists, the audience is is trained to think that they're gonna have a satisfying arc. And really, when the fact is that, you know, Michael Myers cannot die, if only for marketing purposes, like you'll, you'll, these movies will yeah. never, Halloween ends as a joke, they're planning to make more already, like, the, that villain must always persist. Ergo, it's the villain's story, yeah. and you're just waiting to be killed. And that's something that is hard for the characters to grasp. And most of them only do it when they're dead. Yeah. So like, when you've, when you've all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess... Yeah, I guess I will die today. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I do. It's ah, not snap. evil that's dying tonight. I mean, no. An Andrew teased that I will have a politically charged reading of this movie. Just to put a pin in that, I think there is something telling in that, like, American individualism. That myth of American mm -hmm. exceptionalism where yes. everybody is a rugged individualist. And I think, like, one of the criticisms of the Halloween 2018 was the presentation of Laurie as this kind of libertarian fantasy of this person who lives mm -hmm. in a bungalow doomsday prepping with guns and ends up ultimately mm -hmm. validated. Like, I yeah. I cannot think of a major American blockbuster that is more anti-gun than Halloween Kills. Like, it is, frankly, like... <laughs> one guns of, go really bad, Tom. Yeah. One of the movie's, like, big <laughs> recurring motifs is the idea that there is nothing more dangerous than a good guy with a gun. Whether it's, like, Marion Chambers firing her rounds into the roof. The moment where, like, one of... Was it, what's the name of the, the wife? It's, sorry, Vanessa. Where Vanessa, yeah. like, has this gigantic pistol. She's just firing at Michael, and he kicks the door, and she accidentally ends up killing herself in the way that, like, most gun wounds end up being self-inflicted, yeah. whether intentional or otherwise. 
otherwise. But I love that, like, throughout the movie, there is nothing more dangerous than somebody with a gun who thinks they are the hero of the story. Which, again... Yeah feels very charged even outside the context of like 2020 sorry but even in even in halloween 2018 guns don't help them even though she has a million well, guns she, she shoots him in the face she like Karen it doesn't help but it doesn't help <laughs> it's futile like yeah. she still has to burn him alive yeah. like he doesn't stop it, she's michael is shot multiple times in the last scene of halloween kills yeah in the in like the yeah. chest yeah. that should at least slow you down man it does for a moment Just... For a moment. It, 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 oh, I'm sorry. I, one second. I had to walk this off and then get back in the game, coach. I remember being in the bathroom after watching Halloween Kills and listening to people giving out about the fact that Michael Myers can't be killed. Oh, what is he, supernatural or something? I was like, is this your first fucking Halloween movie? This is Michael Myers. <laughs> His head was cut off. He, he, Michael, well, that, that was an him, ambulance but yes. driver. But, but regardless... <laughs> But no, but here's, and this is something I think is interesting, actually, because uh, Halloween is one of the the rare horror franchises that kind of, I don't know, maybe not change genres, but change their reality halfway through. Like, the first five Jason Voorhees movies, he's just supposed to be a guy who's really hard to kill. And in the fifth one, he's dead. It's in the sixth one that they turn him into a zombie. And I always joke about this with my with my uh, with my co-host Winnie Sabo because I always like I'm talking about this is injecting like a new element of like the supernatural or fantasy. And he argues that because he is brought back to life with a lightning strike, it's science. <laughs> so technically, it's a science fiction science. story. It's like science. Yeah, yeah, it's science. Yeah. It's just science. But like Michael Myers was one where you know they they implied that he was like unkillable in the Boogeyman, but the original ending was meant to just sort of be kind of frustratingly vague. It wasn't supposed to tell you that he was immortal. And it wasn't until the Cult of Thorn came in and the psychic powers came in with the fifth movie that this franchise went actually supernatural as well. So the idea of introducing this possibility that maybe he is supernaturally unkillable is also just something that is faithfully adapting the Halloween movie. Yep, yeah. it is. So I can't be mad. How can you be mad about it's... that? It's practically canon. Like, But they also just do it so well that it doesn't bother me. It's great. I it, love that ending of this Because movie. especially with Tommy, because he's it, so smug. And you're like, ha Yeah. It's kind of... The, what what annoyed me a little was the, the kind of end of it where where they're saying, like, he'll always be there because, like, he's our fear. Anytime we don't stand up to him. But everybody's standing up to him. And it didn't and do still, anything. Like, yeah. it doesn't they're matter. They're giving into their fear, though. They're giving into their fear, I think, is the main yeah. thing. A mob mentality is not overcoming your fear. A mob mentality is getting into your fear. Feeding. Which is which is also undermined by the end of Halloween ends where that panic comes back again. And so she just pretend he's not there. I find that ending of that movie very unconvincing. Oh, I love it. I thought it was so moving. Well, it was heavily reshot, to be fair. Halloween ends. Oh, I don't think it works at all. I don't think Haddonfield has earned it, and I don't think it's gonna take. I think they're too far gone. But whatever, that's a different conversation. But like Yeah. Uh, the just, end of Halloween ends. Yeah, the end of. Yeah, Halloween I'm not a ends. fan. I'm not a fan. Oh, okay. Andrew, Andrew hasn't seen it. No yet, spoilers so for Andrew. I know we're not going to ruin it for yeah. you. Not going to ruin it for you. I find it dissatisfying, but but Joy likes it. It's, so I don't think it's possible to spoil it. They, like um, <laughs> at the end of this movie, when Karen died, uh, oh. my my wife Petrina said, "Oh, that's his niece," and I was like, "Yes, that's right." <laughs> 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 like I didn't and. 
<laughs> it was only when we were talking about it now that I'm like, oh yeah, no, that, that that's not <laughs> no no relation <laughs> to him whatsoever. This movie. Yeah, yeah, no you know relation. They had to uh, they had to add her name to IMDb for Halloween ends because so they wouldn't spoil that she died in Halloween Kills. I was like, was anyone was, going oh, through to be that like that was her idea? That was her idea. Yeah. Judy Greer uh, was interviewed. Yeah. And fans asked her why she wasn't in Halloween Ends. And she's like, oh, it's just an oversight. And then got them to add her. Um, I mean, before we talk about the Karen stuff, just on the Michael Myers stuff, what I love about this movie is that, like, Anna Green has talked about this, wanting to make him mysterious again, wanting to make him, like, unreadable, wanting to make him a blank slate onto which you can project why whatever is... you want. But why is Jake Gyllenhaal in the uh, credits for this? We talked about it last week. He's the, the one who introduced. He's the one who cast. introduced. Um, he introduced Green to Curtis. We talked about it last week. He's her godson. He's Curtis's godson. Remember, and he worked with uh, Green on Stronger. And is he that the just one, one of those Google things where it, uh, it, it, it? Oh, sorry, no, never mind. Oh, did, it's a rabbit. Hole. Yeah, it's a rabbit. It's a rabbit, it's a rabbit hole. Okay, but basically, like I love, I love that like Green's motivation for Michael is. Nothing deeper than the tagline to the first movie, and he's talked about this, where the entire premise of Michael wanting to go back to the Myers house, it's like, yeah, I just took the tagline from the first movie, the night he came home. So that is that is it. That's the basis of the character, which I find it's a really interesting thing to do, you know? Um, I think it's very, very effective. Uh, but in terms of the the other stuff, before we talk about the Karen stuff, maybe just like the Bob mentality. Mm. Like again, it's weird to think this was made before before COVID and before January sixth. I I, mean, I don't think so, honestly. Like, there's like history. You talk about this as sort of uh, you, you you were mentioning that this is sort of like an American parable yeah. uh, in some ways. You're not about the you have American exceptionalism. America has a long history of mobs. Oftentimes, like uh, uh, I mean, just lynch mobs alone is a terrifying aspect of our history. Now, granted, Michael Myers is a homicidal maniac, for lack of a better word. And you could argue that, well, maybe this time. No, <laughs> no, we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be better as a society than that. And watching us devolve, as Americans often do, into absolute sheer panic and try to puff ourselves up, puff ourselves up in our, in our ego and create that exceptionalist idea that it's okay when we do it. Uh, and then, of course, it backfires horribly and, and it, it's absolutely miserable and it's, you know, a lesson in that. I, I, think it, I think it actually just taps into something David Gordon Green's been doing throughout his entire career, which is telling stories of small towns mm, yeah. uh, in George Washington. sort of the aggregate. And uh, I think he views Haddonfield in that way and he views Haddonfield as almost an American tragedy where this really bad thing this stain cannot be washed out and it just keeps growing with every generation and you see that it's especially there's like a whole montage at the beginning of halloween ends yeah, that delves into that and but it's it's the groundwork is laid in 2018 and the groundwork is laid in halloween kills for that the fact that our perception of an american mob uh can alter over time very quickly with new context tells you a lot about how America operates. You know, we, we, we started off with, you know, one of the things that launched this country was the Boston tea party. It was a large event of people acting very emotionally to something. And again, 
a lot of extrajudicial, horrible crimes have been committed by mobs, but also a long history of huge and often effective protests as well. The idea of the mob is kind of incorporated, I think, into a large part of the American identity, sometimes for better, often for worse. And I think Halloween Kills is keying into that. And it's one of those things where, yeah, the timing is weird. And I think you look at it after January 6th or yeah, you're, you're going to have one interpretation. But I guarantee you 10 years from now, a new generation is going to have a different interpretation of what an American mob is. And they're going to look at it through that lens. Yeah, um, I know that technically Haddonfield is in Chicago and is, is, you know, within the context of the series seen as being rather north. But I think like it, it's worth noting that both like McBride and Gordon Green are Southern filmmakers and, and throughout their like filmographies and their careers, you can see that idea of that exploration of a particular kind of Southern American masculinity, the righteous gemstones, vice principles, eastbound and down. Those are kind of the McBride ones, the foot fist way, which was like a big McBride's kind of breakout as an actor. Yeah. And there's there's a fair whack of a Western kind of to this as well, where, you know, I mean, Tommy is putting together a posse. Yes. You have the idea of like the guns, the emphasis on the guns and the people carrying guns in the street. You have like the crumpled sheriff's cowboy hat at one point as well. Like the, the plot of this is basically the plot of the Oxbow incident, a classic Western about like the perils of mob mentality. And look, we, we talked about it a bit last week, but these Gordon Green movies are, they're kind of about the Trump era in a very charged way and i know obviously you know this was released after the trump era ends was shot and released after the trump era you know this was shot during the trump era and then put on the shelf Mm -hmm. but like these are very much engaging with i think some stuff that is simmering through the american consciousness and bubbling to the surface around this time Mm. as we've been doing this series we've been like looking at the history of the halloween franchise obviously looking at the slasher genre as a whole one of our big recurring preoccupations has been the idea of gender within that, and in particular, the way that these movies tend to look at women, the the final girl, the cliche of the final girl, and how the franchise explores or subverts or deconstructs that. The question of promiscuity, for example, chastity, abstinence, sexuality, agency, all this sort of stuff, the knife is a penetrating force. And yet the way in which the, the films go back and forth and they kind of veer between you know, being very conservative and traditionalist and being kind of radical and subversive, but often in relation to female characters and feminism and that sort of stuff. And what I think is very interesting about Gordon Green's trilogy, particularly in the context of the larger slasher genre, the Halloween franchise, and of course the time at which it was released, is that Green is is much more interested in this idea of masculinity Mm. and gender as a sort of liminal space where we talked about like last week how much of Halloween 2018 is about the idea of you know swapping gender roles where Laurie spends a lot of the movie behaving like Michael does in earlier Halloween movies she steps into the role of the slasher villain you have Bonnie and Clyde with a twist you you have like Marcus and Vanessa as doctor and nurse, except it's revealed subverting expectations that she is the doctor, even though she's dressed as the sexy nurse. And Marcus is the nurse, even though he's dressed as the masculine doctor. You have the idea, as we, as we talked about, that like the boy in the relationship is the virgin, not the girl. You also have like the kid going hunting with his dad who just likes to dance. Yeah. You have this kind of subversion of 
masculinity in that 2018 movie. And I think what's really interesting about Kills is that Kills then is about masculine insecurity. It's about this idea of the men in Haddonfield feeling powerless and impotent and useless and worthless and how they try to make themselves feel more important and more potent by acting out. And that just kind of makes things worse. I mean, you have a, a couple of very direct examples of this, you know, very obvious, like Lonnie Elam. He, obviously, he's a legacy character from the original Halloween, but his surname is male spelled backwards. But obviously, like, he's introduced being bullied by two girls. Yeah. Lonnie's son is reintroduced wearing a dress. He's still feeling humiliated and hurt by what happened with Allison in the previous movie. And so he sets to win her back by engaging in an act of violence, by proving that he is a real man and can do what real men can do. Tommy's obviously setting himself in a position of, you know, stereotypical authority as a protector instead of a guy who just tells sad stories at a bar. And you have Marcus and Vanessa, where Marcus is this nurse who is play-acting at being a doctor and spends a lot of the movie just trying to assert himself, to prove that he can handle the guns that he's been given, that he's capable of doing the stuff that one expects a husband or a partner to be able to do. But she's also, like, constantly telling him, you have to, like, get in there and punch out our yeah. boss. Yeah, yeah. Act like a man. Yeah. And then yeah. takes the gun off him as well and makes him feel insecure and he proves that he can stand up for himself. And a lot of what's driving his participation in this mob is the the fact that he doesn't feel like a man he feels humiliated and kind no, of just to say, the one the one exception to that in the movie is interesting because the two male characters in this movie who are very secure and there's some of my favorite characters are big john little john oh the johns i love the yeah. johns i love they're them. actually they're cool yeah. they're cool they're pretty cool together and they're they're fine they're not insecure about nothing they're very confident it doesn't help that <laughs> michael myers is going to kill anybody because michael myers in this version, doesn't really care who he kills. He just kills to kill. Yeah. He just kills. Remember when people thought it was homophobic, though? Yeah. That he killed gays in this, which was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, there's, just, there's a lot of schools of thought about how representation uh, should work. Uh, you know, there's the Harvey Firestein has argued, I think he argued this in the celluloid closet, that all representation is good representation. That just having people of, you know, in, in his case, he was specifically talking about queer people, but just in general, more people centered in our fiction and in our media mm. is good. But then again, you we do sometimes wonder like, okay, but if they're always portrayed in as victims way, yeah. or villains, that has an impact as well. One of one of my this is a tangent, but like one of my like that most annoying tropes of like the last 10 years of mainstream cinema, and you see it in a lot of things, is in the Fast and Furious movies, it was in Godzilla, it was in Marvel. The idea of the villain who in order to justify them and make them seem like well-rounded uh, is concerned about environmentalism or overpopulation, a real existential threat that we have, but their solution is like a mass extinction event, which the heroes must stop. They must stop this environmentalist because they've gone too far, but they never stop the environmental problem. problem. Yeah. They do nothing about the underlying issue and so one movie doing that is not a big deal a whole bunch of billion dollar blockbusters mm. doing that and all of a sudden we're creating this idea that environmentalists are all overreacting and i don't think that's necessarily a healthy thing so it's a matter of are we looking at it a micro or a macro um so yeah so here you know it in a, in just by itself you know you can argue that if you've seen this a lot it's bad representation 
or if you agree that like and not everyone does that all representation is good and here are guys who are portrayed as heroic yeah they're good guys i mean they they, they don't mess with those kids and those until those kids mess with them and all they do is tell the scary story and they're a happy couple like, too which i think is they're happy is couple. lovely to see as a queer person that they're a happy couple they have the house done lovely you know what i mean yeah and... it's great so like so like they're they're portrayed well. It's just a horror movie, and horror movie people die. Yes. But and I I do think they get a lot of time as well. Like you do get a sense of who they are, and it's devastating as well when he puts them in the same position as the photo. Like that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like because Michael Myers does care about things. That's the thing that people forget. He's a stunt because... queen in this movie. He had, well, he always was. Yeah. No, he was. That's something, that's something that's weird because Michael Myers is such a cipher. He's got a blank mask. Everyone's projecting onto him. But the person with the strongest opinion about Michael Myers in the first movie was Dr. Loomis. And Dr. Loomis was a psychologist who couldn't get through to this kid. What Michael Myers represented to him was a failure of psychology. That's his ego that has been destroyed. And so the solution isn't, I don't know enough about psychology to yeah. psychoanalyze Michael Myers. He's the solution is he's evil. He's the exception to the rule. There is nothing inside of him. There is no pathology. And every single thing in that movie actually argues against that because what's his pathology? He's going home. He is recreating the murder. He is creating an actual altar to his dead sister. Yep. He is absolutely interested in things and, and actually pathologizing stuff. He has this weird tendency to sort of artistry yeah. with his kills. When he has a moment, yeah, he and does. he's not like in a rush, yeah. he won't just stab a guy. He'll be like, shove him in the closet so he swings dead. Let's see what this yeah, knife he, looks like in yeah, there. Yeah, here, oh, another one. Let's see what this looks like. And he's just, he's, that's him playing. That's him being an artist, you know? Or a six-year-old kid. A six-year-old kid playing with a, a doll, basically. Except the doll yeah. was a human being. But he loved, he loves to have a witness as well to his destruction. Like, the bit where he's putting more and more knives in, it's because she's watching. He loves an audience as well. He loves to let people know, oh, I'm really going to fuck you up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Two two things I want to I want to put a pin in and come back to the <laughs> question of, like, representation and stuff like that. But the, the sequences... I think Green does not get enough credit for what he does formally with Halloween Kills. We talked about how last week with Halloween 2018, Green is the first director since Tommy Lee Wallace with Halloween 3 to really emulate Carpenter's style. To make a Halloween movie that looks like a Halloween movie mm. like those first three do. Um, but here you get him actually like experimenting and innovating with the visual language and grammar of these movies. And there are two things that he does, which I find absolutely stunning. First of which is point of view shots. The Halloween franchise, famously point of view shots. Famously point of view shots from Michael's perspective. Halloween Kills consistently uses the camera to put you in the perspective of the victims. He does it mm. several times over the course of the movie. Um, famously, like with Tivali, uh, the umbrella man, I love that his umbrella is still in the car, Aww. but you're in Tivali's head when he's running through the hospital. You see him look at his own reflection. As he hurtles towards the ground, you're in his perspective as he's dying. When the firemen are helping people out of the building, you're in the perspective of a fireman as he sticks the crowbar through the eye. And you keep cutting back to the perspective of that dying fireman as the fight is happening around him as well. That moment that you mentioned where he's sticking knives in the back of the guy, Green does something absolutely incredible there, which is the camera begins on the wife bleeding out. And then moves and spins slowly around so it's over her shoulder and it's what she's seeing. Mm. And very cleverly, and he does it again later on with, I believe it's Marcus's death. 
the perspective is faded and blurred because obviously she is slipping out of consciousness. She can't actually focus on what's happening. So you have her shoulder and her head in the foreground and you just have Michael as the shape, the literal shape, the blur, sticking the knives in. It happens again later on when he attacks Marcus in the car. He stabs a knife through his eye and you can see a shot of the famous head tilt of Michael except it's blurring because you are in the perspective of somebody who is dying who has just witnessed what Michael's doing. And there is notably, I think, a lot of eye trauma in this movie as well. Again, when he attacks the first fireman, he takes the fire axe and just pounds it into his eyeball. He sticks the crowbar into the eyeball of the next fireman. He sticks a knife into Marcus's eyeball. He gouges out Big John's eyeball in a very, very graphic sequence, which is really uncomfortable to watch. Like, it does feel like Green is using the language of these movies to draw your attention to like the observation of violence Mm. and to suggest that like for most, again, the standard language of the slasher movie where we empathize with the killer, we're in the killer's perspective. Bernice talked about that a lot very well when we talked about the first Halloween. I think green here puts us in this perspective of the victims very pointedly and very deliberately. I think that's very clever. Sorry. And it makes, and it makes the kills more impactful. They're not, uh, we're not looking at them. A A lot of slasher movies, not necessarily all the good ones, but some, uh, they're more interested in the killer. They see it as uh, sort of a haunted house for us to walk through. We're not necessarily supposed to be participating in a lot of empathy, at least for most of the characters. A lot of them are very broadly drawn. And every single character pretty much in this movie, David Gordon Green gives us a moment with them before yeah. they know Michael Myers is in there. There's, and they did the, they did the last one too, but there's a lot more in them here. He And as a result, I think the kills in this movie, in addition to just being shocking and violent, they're kind of pathetic. Like, we pity the characters yeah. in this movie, and that makes it so much more painful to watch. It's not a fun yeah. series of kills. Like, I'm I'm pretty desensitized. I've seen a lot of violent horror movies in this, in this time, and I've seen this movie already. And when I watched it again last night to prepare for this, there was a couple where I was like, Jesus. Yeah, me too. Wow. Damn, that hurts. You know, like it, it really felt very visceral. He's very good at humanizing people in short moments of time. Again, like that conversation yeah. about the mommy sandwich in 2018 with the two cops. But mm. here where they're like, the, the, he gives all these characters business. Where like Marion is playing with the stethoscope when she meets Marcus and Vanessa, for example, which is a lovely little touch. Things like them arguing over the drone, the husband and wife playing with the drone. Um, all that sort of stuff, which makes you feel like these are actual people, not just like pieces of meat moving along a conveyor belt. But to your point about representation, I just I wanted to quote from uh, Walter Shaw's review for Decider. Um, Shaw's... Okay, well, none of us can compete with Walter. No, he's a genius. That, one of the great critics of our time. Yes, one of, one of our great yeah. and often righteously angry critics of our time. Ugh. This is going to be a bit of a, a long excerpt. I apologize to Andrew, but I just I want to get this on record because I think this is a really good read of the movie. Green's Halloween Kills is grim to the point of nihilism. It's ugly, sadistic, mean. There's not a thing that is conventionally enjoyable about it, and its most horrifying scene's closest analogue is Fritz Lang's angry mob melodrama Fury. It doesn't have the spark of hope that Green's first film had, that faintest suggestion that a woman's trauma might be overcome by being believed and through the support of loved ones. 
In its place is a firm statement that there is no good in the world that is not an illusion, no hope for deliverance from the hell of ourselves and others, and the past is not only inescapable, but both a life and death sentence. In its way, it reminds me a lot of David Fincher's Alien 3, and that film's heroine's declaration to the monster that shadows her that it's been in her life so long she can't remember anything else. All the characters in Halloween Kills are attached to the murders that happened here in 1978. The gang of middle-aged survivors, now vigilantes led by broken-down Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace. Three generations of strode women. Um, the police force decimated and humiliated with their nominal leader completely incapacitated. It's a processional of bit players and ancillary characters from John Carpenter's original film, down to even the digital phantom of Donald Pleasance Loomis. Not a digital phantom. It's we'll not come back digital, to that. yeah. No, we'll come back to that. We'll put a pin in that. Yeah, yeah. The- we, a lot of people thought he was initially because yeah. he's so convinced. Yeah. But yeah, it's wonderful prosthetics, though. Why would you ever do? Why would you ever do de aging when you can do well, that? This, this proved the CGI. Yes. Yeah. Boom. We don't need it. it was... Back to Walter. Back yeah, to sorry, Walter. Sorry, sorry, Walter. Um, we're mm-hmm. halfway there. I apologize. Mm-hmm. And rather than offer them the kind of send off that the Raiders franchise gave its characters in the Last Crusade, it annihilates all hope, even from the original picture. In Carpenter's Halloween, the children were off limits. In Halloween Kills, the children have grown. Here's the point about representation that I think really stuck with me. Halloween Kills is sociopathic. It's an odd film to defend, but Halloween Kills is not wrong about who we are. If the last five or six years hasn't taught us that there's no clean way to get out of this, that 40% of our neighbours at any time are either actively okay with your death or passively okay with it, nothing will. It's not a warning, and it's not subtle about it either, with an extended Laurie voiceover at the end telling us that Michael is the manifestation of the tensions that divide us. What Halloween Kills is, though, is a mercilessly pr- a merciless probing of our tolerance for atrocities. For how long and how many of these people will watch get butchered, dressed like hogs, before we have a physical response to it? Will we kick when it's the interracial couple? The black couple. The gay guys. How about the kids who all seem to be out of central casting for the Wild Bunch, all snickering bullies and their feckless victims? How many people have to die, drowning in their own fluids as the people who love them watch, before we change our behaviours? I don't like the answer the film provides, but I like the answer the United States provides even less. Halloween Kills is a sledgehammer memoir of our sickness. All these movies about the pandemic and the gun lobby and our political divide. And it's the horror movie with the good guys driving a mentally ill man to suicide Ugh. that tells the tale. It made me sick. That's, yeah, sorry. This, this, this right here, this is why I have imposter syndrome. Yes, on me. <laughs> how, did I, how did I ever get to be a critic? Fucking hell. God, he's good. Yeah. Right? I've Jesus. never written anything that um, good ever in a decade. Like, no. I never will. I, I, this is it. This is it for me. I, I, must... I feel like a dummy. <laughs> I was... I know, I know. But like I said, I, I, I don't always agree with Wilder Shaw, but I, he's just so impeccable. But his writing is always, yeah, yeah. His writing is brilliant. His insights, his insights are always, if not, you know, sometimes they're subjective, of but they're they're pointed and they're well articulated, and it's hard to argue that that's a valid interpretation. And I actually happen to agree with pretty much everything he's saying there. And it's that, and I, what I think is interesting though is that the observation that he makes of that, that bleakness is either good or bad, depending on your perspective. You could argue that that's way too much, and they're overplaying their hand, and it's not really designed structurally to have that level of commentary, and it kind of collapses on itself as sort of an overbearing social statement. You can make that argument. I I disagree, but you can make that argument. It's not unreasonable. Um, Or you can say, that's exactly why I love it. Yeah. Yeah. 
which is probably where I fall the two. Um, and I, Same. I do like not to put too much of a, a hat on it, as it were. <laughs> but like, I think like we've talked about we talked about like Omar Dorsey's Sheriff Barker oh. um, in Halloween 2018. I think he's used remarkably well here. When his hat is trampled and he's just sitting there so defeated. It's just a second, yeah. but it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful shot. Yeah, and apparently, like, Dorsey talked to McBride and he talked to Green when they cast him. And he said, look, um, this is a white town. Mm. It's a white town. It isn't Atlanta. It's a white town. I'm going to wear a cowboy hat. I want to wear cowboy boots, but I want to sound black as hell. And there's going to be a dynamic there. Mm. And I think when you watch this movie, they're very much it, like it's unspoken. Like, Dorsey doesn't get many lines, but they keep mm. cutting to him for reaction shots throughout the movie, which are really uncomfortable and really effective. Like mm. the moment where Tommy Doyle is standing in the lobby giving his speech Ugh. and you keep cutting to Barker in focus as Tommy is out of focus, just reacting to it. Or the moment where Barker says, look, I'm the sheriff, I'm in charge here. And Tommy responds by saying, we're protecting our town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or that wonderful moment where it's they're... Loaded with subtext, absolutely. Loaded with subtext. Yeah. The moment where they're forcing, the moment where he loses the hat, as Joey mentions, where they're forcing their way up the steps to get to as a Trevally. And yeah. the moment you just get this moment of him trying to hold them in place and just this intense close-up of his face as he screams. Like he's just shouting. He's lost control. I, it's, I don't know. The, that's, that really stuck with me this time. Sorry. There's a very telling line that Tommy has in this movie where uh, it's one of the scenes where he's trying to like stir up a mob, trying to get people on board. And he, he's, there's that like a gas station or something that says, uh, I need good people, yes. people who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. Yes. And I'm like, those are two contradictory statements, Tommy. <laughs> and we have, you've lost yourself here. You've completely lost yourself. But it's so, it's so wonderful to see that turned on its head by the end. Because when you're watching yeah. that, you're like, oh, fuck off. Like, come on. Who do you think you are with this shit? Like, and there, we've just discovered that there are a whole bunch of men, if you're on Twitter at all, there's a whole bunch of men out there who are preparing for just such an occasion, apparently, because they think it's yeah. coming. And it, so it's it's realistic in that sense and it's great to just see them all get completely decimated because it's like no you don't know what you're dealing with the ending of this movie uh for a moment uh it looks like the movie is going to end with a mob of people surrounding michael myers beating and shooting and stabbing him into oblivion mm-hmm. and you know that there is a moment that they expect the audience to go oh how satisfying and how great is it <laughs> that we turn that all the way around and then Michael Myers just gets up and it's like, yeah, I let you have the first shot. Stab, stab, yep. stab, 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 stab. And he's completely invincible because he represents something. I love that this is a movie that plays with the idea that it's real and has an ending that defies that. Yeah. I mean, that absolutely you cannot take that ending 100% literally or it doesn't make sense. You have to accept that this is, it is either moving into a supernatural plane or it's moving into an allegorical plane. But either way, your your assumptions are completely wrecked by the end. I mean, it's worth noting that the way that Green shoots that scene is not naturalistic at all. It's heavily stylized. Yes. Like, it reminds me of, like, did you watch the Rat Catcher, the Wes Anderson short? That confrontation where the Tommy is standing face to face with Michael is very much like the moment where Ray Fiennes kills the rat in the Rat Catcher. It's meant to be this kind of heightened, almost expressionistic thing. It's just beautiful. It's stunning. Um, yeah. We want to talk a little bit about the 1970s flashback. Oh, um love it. We mentioned that that is not... That is not a CGI Loomis. Yeah. No, it's, it's so good. Oh. 
It's looks so convincing. I really thought that I thought that they had some footage that they had like doctored. Like, oh, we have this one angle of Loomis and we're going to uh, composite him in there. And we're just going to like, you know, the, it has to be dark so that, you know, the lighting will match. And I was like, hey, good job, honestly. And then I found out that's just an actor in a mask. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's not even the actor. It's not even the actor. It's the art. It's the art director on the movie. Apparently, like Green yeah. saw him and was like, "You look just like Donald Pleasance. You should be in the movie." Well, how great is that? That's yeah. so amazing. It's, I don't. I. I don't know how anyone could look at that and think, "Yeah, we're going to waste money and time on de aging technology." That's never convincing. It looks oh, stunning. Well, I don't like the whole de aging thing in general no. because it's a way for studios and corporations to maintain ownership on yeah. something and never have to expand. Yes. You know, it's basically like instead of casting a new actor at some point and putting a new spin on this character, we've got this person, this, this, uh, this digital person, yeah. this digital version yeah. of everyone who has ever been a character. And then we never have to change it. And now we, the corporation, can control every facet of the performance. There will never be anything new or interesting ever again. I hate that. And I would rather every single part get recast yep. because every single time a major part has been recast, there's always been a backlash. How dare you? And then almost every single time it's as good or better. It's like, oh my God, how can you replace Cesar Romero with Jack Nicholson? This is nonsense. Turns out it was fine. How can you replace Jack Nicholson with Heath Ledger? Turns out it was fine. How could you replace uh, Heath Ledger with Jared? Le okay, there's an exception. But how can you replace Jared Leto with Joaquin Phoenix? Turns out it's fine. It's just it's yeah. totally fine. Just let them recast it. And in this case, you just it turns out that you could just make it look like Donald Pleasance really easily. Um, it was great. And I, like I do, I love the production design of that opening yes. segment where yeah, they, they went great. and they got the sets like and the way they shot it, they used digital grain to make it look like the 70s. I was and the way say, in which yeah. Halloween is completely empty. Like it, it's like the original 1978 film. There is nobody in any scene apart from the characters with lines, which I thought was brilliant, yeah. which is very much the vibe of Carpenter's kind of movie. And it really looks like old school Haddonfield as well. It really just looks like another corner of the town that you haven't seen in 1978. What would have been great, and I haven't actually scoured it, is it would have been great if they had shot that, like they had shot the original Halloween in South Pasadena, which is right by where I grew up, and they had like a couple of palm trees just <laughs> hiding in there just so that it felt That's totally true. properly. Because there's great. a lot of them in the original movie. It's hilarious. And there's also a Bob Odenkirk cameo here as well, which yes. is like weird, but yeah. Yeah, I saw that in the credits. I saw that. Yeah. Well, in the credit, in, in, yeah, again, going to IMDb, a, I noticed that. It's like, a photograph. Whoa. Yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. an old photograph of him. That is weird. There's something that there's something that David Gordon Green does with these Halloween movies, which is very, very strange to me. Uh, which is if you look in the original Halloween, John Carpenter has multiple scenes of the kids that Laurie is babysitting watching TV and they're watching old horror movies. One of which is the thing from Another World, which John Carpenter would of course later remake. The other one is Forbidden Planet. They don't necessarily have a lot to do with the original movie, but they kind of thematically connect. Forbidden Planet is about the id, it's about psychology, and the thing is about this sort of other entity yeah, that we can't understand. Shape, if you will. Infecting us. The movies that David Gordon Green includes feel really random. There's one that he includes Starman? in the original movie. Oh, sorry. <laughs> in the original, in the David Gordon Green's 2018 film, he includes a clip of a TV series called Voyagers which was a one-season time travel story. It was kind of like an American version of Doctor Who. It's actually quite good. But what the heck are we supposed to make of that, David? Are you saying that, like, 
this is like an alternate reality time travel narrative or something like that. And it's all like kind of connected and kind of like a multiverse. Is that what you're doing with this? What are, and then like, I think in, in one of them, there's also like a pinball machine that's from Back, yeah, to, the from back yeah. to the Future. Yeah, we suggest that as well. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't do that to us, man. We're going to look into everything. And now I'm trying to be like, how is Halloween kills like Minnie and Moskowitz? How, how, what? I think I think that's more signaling the direction that he wants to take Halloween ends. Like that's the thing. It feels like yeah. he had Halloween ends in mind while he was writing this. It's like it's going to be like an indie romantic drama. Um, <laughs> it's going to be about a romance between this that's interesting this woman and this odd entity. And yes, Halloween ends has um, Carpenter's The Thing in it, which is like yeah. the only obvious reference in the whole trilogy. But that's back to obviously the thing from another world. There's, Sorry, yeah. Andrew, you look like there's. No, there's something kind of troubling me, and um, I'm <laughs> about the way the way this movie ends, and the way that people kind of have been divided on it, and the way that people feel, um, I suppose, uh, supportive of the 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 hopelessness or the despair of the ending. I think um, that there there is an appetite for despair. And there is is kind of um, people kind of giving up, and that it's uh, it's it's much easier to do because you don't have to go out and convince anybody of anything. You can just be right and 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 die, you know, in 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 the in this terrible world that you haven't created, but also you haven't done anything. You have to, no control. To, to yeah, then and 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 that like. You know, uh, it's it it it's pointless because there's all these powers beyond our control that 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 there's nothing I can do about, and I I can be one of the good guys, but it won't make any difference, and that that that's kind of easier place to be. And I don't know, I I, I, I just kind of, I kind of hate it. Can I counter that, Andrew? It's a horror movie. Like that that thought is meant to be terrifying. Like that's yeah. the thing that's what I that's why I find this movie. I don't think it is terrifying. I think it's comforting for people. You don't think it's terrifying? I I I, I think people you think, want... you think that the, okay. you think okay. confirming people's despair is, is weirdly comforting. Yeah, I, I I I I genuinely think that 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 okay. that 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 there there is a point at which people give up. I can see that. And 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 that they feel like that is that that is the like correct place to get to, you know. With <laughs> I think it's interesting that maybe that 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 bleakness might be one of the reasons why some people also wanted to reject it because we're going through so much all the damn time lately. Mm. And sure. I remember one of the things that I, it, this didn't really linger, but I remember seeing some people who were really upset that uh, at the beginning, well, not the beginning of the movie, it's like twenty minutes in. When Michael Myers escapes from Laurie's burning house, the first thing he does is go on a massacre of first responders. <laughs> yeah. And people are like, sure. oh, do we really need that right now? And I'm like, on one hand, I see your point. On the other hand, it's a horror movie. Yeah, and it's such a brilliant sequence. Yeah, it's really, really terrifying. And yeah, those guys don't deserve it. They're, they did nothing to deserve it. It's a horror movie. That is part and parcel. I'm not saying that you can't irresponsibly make a horror movie. I've seen plenty of horror movies. They're irresponsible in a variety of ways. Their uh, overall allegory is, is messed up and extremely unhealthy. Or again, the representation is egregious and problematic. Uh, that can happen. I don't really see it being irresponsible in Halloween Quills. I, I just think it's nihilistic. And some people... is futile. I mean, futile. Futile. Uh, yeah, that's fair enough. 
I, I think I think I don't know if I'm comforted by that, but I do feel a connection to that because in my darker moments, especially with everything going on, you know, in the world, uh, and I don't know what day this uh, is going to be released, but I can guarantee you, you can check the news and know what I'm saying is in reference to that. Because everything is so horrible so consistently so much now. That uh, I think people connect to it. But I also think that not having any grain of hope in this movie is something people didn't necessarily want that day. Yeah. Well, that's what I think the reaction to it was a kind of a rejection of it. I mean, I, yeah. I really like this movie, but I, I don't like it because I sit back and I puff my cigarette and go... Ah, that is how the world is. I am validated <laughs> in my opinion. I go, no, this is when I, I lie in bed at night and I stare at the ceiling in my darkest moments. Yeah. And I think maybe the world is like this. Like, I want to believe people are good and decent and kind. I want to believe that there is capacity for, like, wonder and majesty and decency. But you but don't. Might... Ouch. Okay. No, in, in the sense that... that, that this is what I mean is that is that people don't truly believe that like you know there's any stopping Michael Myers or that there is any I I feel like the world that we live in is is defined and we've spoken about this Darren about how um, this is the Tomorrowland thing where we the self-perpetuating cycle of darkness where you start telling people the world is unsavable and they begin to believe it kind of exactly yeah. yeah I don't think the vast majority of people believe that, though. Yeah, I think I think people think that in their darkest moments. Yeah, but I think it, like those that... are yeah. But as you say, that's when you're at your lowest, and you think, "Oh my god, what's the point of even right. trying?" That's what horror is. I think. Well, that's what one side horror, horror is. Horror, yeah, for, horror often for, forces you to confront that side of yourself, and that's why people find it uncomfortable. But that is there's, there's yeah. A, there's there's a thing that I think the horror genre is perhaps sometimes poorly defined. For a lot of people, and a lot of people assume that for a movie to be a real, in air quotes, horror movie, uh, it needs to scare you specifically. And if it doesn't scare you, somehow it's no longer in the genre. That's not how the, that's not how genre works. Genre isn't subjective. Genre actually has to have distinctive markers because genre is based on audience expectation. You know, to define yourself in a genre, the audience is going, "Well, this is in the romantic comedy genre." I have some general sense of what I would I expect get. there to be jokes, and I expect there to be a couple. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like, and you can play with that. You don't have to do every single trope in every single movie, but genre is based on expectation. And one of the reasons why Halloween was so influential was it wasn't the first slasher movie. It's not even the first movie that really followed these rules. It was the one that was popular and easy to imitate. You can, with very little money. Imitate the structure of Halloween, change the mask, change the location, change the characters. You've got a su sufficiently different movie that you're not going to get sued, but you will hit the same beats and you will connect to the same audience. That's why we had a ton of imitators after Halloween and not, for example, the TV movie slasher Home for the Holidays starring Sally Field, mm -hmm. which hits also a lot of the same beats and came out many years earlier, but nobody saw it. Uh when it comes to something like Halloween Kills, you know, they're 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 defying a lot of those expectations and there's a certain amount of dissatisfaction that comes with that. And I think there's a certain amount of uh, rejection that comes with that. I think a lot of us are excited because horror makes us uncomfortable. And to see a movie that can do that in a new or interesting way, especially in a franchise that has at least theoretically its identity kind of stamped into our consciousness, at least as a baseline. That can be really, really exciting. But for everyone else, like, again, 
we're not always, you look at the mainstream audience, we talked about this earlier, uh, they're not necessarily going to a horror movie to be depressed. Mm, or to be challenged. There's a, to, there's a, we go for a thrill, and that at the end of the movie, the evil is defeated, at least temporarily, and we all go, well, I'm glad there's no longer that nun around <laughs> from the nun, too. None like, of I'm that now, That's eh? not going to be a thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's, that's why I call me none the wiser. <laughs> um, but um, I was working on that pun for years before I was able to successfully use it in my nun, too, review. I was very proud of it. <laughs> um, couldn't quite crack it. That's how I work. But, uh, that's how I work as well. I have a, yeah. a book. Um. But again, some people look at a horror as it's got to be bleak and nihilistic. Some people look at horror as like it's got to have a lot of kills. And all that horror really needs to do in a really general way is be about our fears in a very direct way. It has to actually like connect to our fears because fears are subjective. What scares the hell out of me might not even put a dent in you. You know, some people are terrified of spiders. Some people love spiders and keep spiders as pets. So arachnophobia isn't going to freak that person out as much as the other one. But that doesn't mean it's not a horror comedy, mm. you know? So I think a movie like Halloween Kills was challenging in a way that people didn't necessarily want to deal with. Yes. And I think as well, it reflected the time as all great horror movies do. And I think we talked about this with Halloween 2018 as well, in a way that people probably didn't want to really investigate. Like, I mean, Anthony Michael Hall's Tommy, he's basically like a Joe Rogan fan. And he's brilliant in the role, brilliantly cast. And I think maybe, I mean, a lot of horror fans are white male, straight white male. I don't know if maybe they had the same problem with it that they did with the end of Scream 5, uh, where they didn't like seeing themselves and it kind of forced them. And that's why they rejected it as well, because they were thinking, well, if it is going to be us, we should book and win at the end. We should defeat him. And then they were like, wait, they don't emerge victorious? What the hell is that? So I think that was kind of an element of it too. Is that there? Because there has been such well, yes, I, ego, and there's been. I think you, you can. But people assuming that they're the protagonist in their own story. Exactly. I mean, this is a movie that challenges them. And with the rise of the all right and everything else, as we've talked about, like a lot of that does tap into that. And you know, there are people definitely sitting in the cinema who hold those beliefs, and they're like, "Wait, we don't win in the end." No, I don't like this. I don't know. I I push back on that. I think a lot of liberal progressive critics were quite critical of the movie, and I think a large part of that is down to what William said, which is like. You go to a franchise like Halloween, a brand you recognize to feel kind of safe, familiar. You want I, things that are... I, sorry, 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 sorry. We're kind of get, getting away from what might be like a, a legitimate criticism of the movie, which is, which is like, what is an appropriate response to terror, I guess? But not For this. me, like, I... I, 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 I want to be frightened, but I, 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 I also want to kind of contextualize that you know and feel 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 like there 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 is a journey that i can go on with my fears you don't feel like what this guy's on a journey what do you what do you think it does instead that it, that it's it's i'm curious like what do you what do you think it does instead of a journey yeah that the um I I I feel that it's a it's a kind of the world is a bad place and we're all doomed. <laughs> and, 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 so you think, and do you that, think it's kind that, of stagnant, that, like it doesn't grow, it doesn't like change that reputation over time? Yeah, and and that is yeah, and okay. that is saying and 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 if and once we realize that, you know, you know that that it's frightening, but there's nothing we can do about it. Kind of that 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 that's kind of I don't know. 
can I push back on that? Just, just, just you ask like, what, what can we do when we are confronted with this horror, right? And the movie repeatedly comes back to characters faced with a choice. And the choice is, and I mean, William mentioned The Last Jedi earlier on. It's that like, we don't win by destroying the things we hate. We win by protecting the things we love. Repeatedly throughout this movie, characters are confronted with choices where they have to choose between either helping people heal or going off and participating in vigilante violence. It happens first with Hawkins when Hawkins is halfway down the stairs and he remembers that Jim Cummings is bleeding out on the floor. It happens with the hospital as well, where everybody is there with Laurie. Obviously, like Vanessa and Marcus, they're both doctors. This horrible thing has happened. Haddonfield Memorial is overrun. Yeah, you why need don't they more go doctors. There. Yeah. Why don't Vanessa and Marcus go to the hospital and, and contribute in some small way? I know maybe they've had a drink or whatever, but it never really comes up. It's never really suggested. It's let's go out and hunt this thing. Mm-hmm. And Karen and like the granddaughter only end up in trouble here in this movie when they leave the hospital. When they abandon Laurie, who needs their care and their protection and their love. And Karen is very, very strict on the point that there are people whose job it is to deal with this and this is not our role. She holds that point. No, she, for... she says, she says system. the system has failed. No, that's, that's no, Laurie. That's Laurie, Laurie says the system's failed. No, Karen believes in the system. Yeah. Karen Blake believes that she can like go up there, she can protect the guy, she can talk out the mob. And she's disproven, at least in that moment. I, I think... What, but, but, I think and then she, after that, Karen does what Andrew says, which is she gives up. She has that moment with Tommy where she says, you let an innocent man, innocent man die. No, wait, none of us are innocent. And then, then she goes after yeah. Michael and then she dies. Like, she embraces and that nihilism. And she gets punished for it. I mean, yeah. she, does, she does save her daughter and that muddles the message a little bit. That's true. She does she save is, her daughter a little bit. You, you could make the argument that she's not necessarily doing it because she wants to get Michael. She's doing it because she wants to save her kid, which is a yeah, more... There's a, well, there, there's like... There, there, I, I don't find that that like hopeful or inspiring. It's like, don't go out and confront the bad guy. Stay at home in your own groups and, and kind of... In a hospital, which is a communal space for healing. I think the um, point is more that vigilante justice isn't the, isn't the answer. That be that mob mentality isn't the answer, because it is. And also, we got to realize it's a disproportionate response. Yes, there's huge one guy thing. out there killing people. We are going to stoke up the anxieties and fears of hundreds of people to the extent that there's someone in my car. I assume it's Michael Myers. It wasn't even him. Oh, it's so and that gets people in, invested mm. in vigilante justice, and then they die because of that. We're talking about the way that we respond to tragedy and horror. You know, in a moment, it can feel justified to do something kind of extreme in response to that. And I'm not saying it, it's impossible for that to be the case. But, you know, there, there's a reason why when we look back on bad things that have happened in history and we look at how the immediate reaction to that did not help, it's because we lost our heads. It's because we got scared. It's because we thought that, okay, we have been uh, attacked in some way. And now it is a, behooves us in order to protect ourselves to bring that back on the other person tenfold. And we, and, you know, and again, sometimes that feels justified. Sometimes it it really doesn't. But at some point, history is going to look back on you like the Hatfields and McCoys and say to yourself, it, yeah, neither of you were really right. 
at any point here, and the perpetuation is a problem. And so the idea that this mob justice has collateral damage is the movie, I think, on that journey trying to give us something useful in that it's becoming a cautionary tale. That mob mentality getting stirred up by fear to do something that feels like it makes sort of a righteous sense, but is actually illogical and dangerous is a problem. Consider the fact as well, those people wouldn't have died if they didn't put themselves in that situation. If they'd stayed home... No, Michael would have just... Yeah. Michael would just stayed home. He would have like, he, 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 just continued he, on. Some people, some people would have died because they were in his path, but most yeah. of them put themselves in there. They do. And, like, if they had just stayed in the hospital, if they just had stayed home... Like, Elam, yeah. Elam himself says, like, as Lonnie says in the car, you idiot, you brought your son to a slaughterhouse. And he's right. Yeah. And he's right. He's absolutely right. I love that he's like, you're not coming in with me. It's like, um, they're already in danger, sir. Like, There's a... There's a risk of, of doing this where, like, it sounds like you're blaming, like, the victims here, but they have their own victims. There's the reason why we absolutely needed that character who also escaped with Michael. Oh, yeah. And we needed to see that character suffer and die. I, that's a horrible thing to say, but in no, a dramatic fashion. True. Without that, then it feels like all of these guys in this mob were doing exactly the right thing. They were trying to protect their community, and then they died, and isn't that sad? You put that character in there. One person who dies completely unnecessarily had nothing to do with anything. That right there cements the movie's point. The movie's point is that the mob justice is, again, maybe an understandable response, but it's not a good response. It's not a helpful response. And it is a dangerous response for a community to undertake that. And when we get to Halloween ends, which I haven't seen yet, um, you'll see that that never really leaves the town. Yeah. That mentality, that fear, that distrust, that lingers. Yeah, and and arguably not to yeah, not to spoil next week's discussion, but yes, you end up the characters who are happy end up leaving that mentality rather than the town moving on. And it's the fear of the unknown as well. I think it's really taking aim at people who are just like, oh, an outsider, fucking kill them. Because again, that mental patient, he doesn't come in aggressively. He comes in saying, "Help me, help me," yeah. to a hospital, and their their response is. This must be Michael. Why, why would Michael Myers come in there with no mask on and say, help me, Ellie? All right. Uh, we we need to wrap up. Um, is there anything else people want to say? Oh, sorry. Real fast about that. There's one thing in this movie that I think is actually a huge plot hole. Oh. And I do think it's worth noting. And that's uh, that character. People assume that that's Michael Myers and they run after him. Most people didn't even get a look at him. But after he dies, Johnny is like hovering over him. And it's all like, well, how do we know that's not Michael Myers? We've never seen him without his mask off. You're telling me they never got a mugshot? Nope. He's on the television. You see him without the mask on the television, Plus, blurred in the background. Taller. He's way yeah. taller. Fat man's little. <laughs> Again, and that, cel- and that cements the whole thing that this is how unreasonable and how afraid everyone was. But that exact line is, there's a couple of lines that I think undermine this movie. And I think that one is, it's a plot hole. It's not a big deal, but it's distracting. The other one is, and this is the reason why, I think Evil Dies Tonight became a joke line. It's actually repeated all that many times. It's, it's not like constantly in the movie. It's really not. It's in there. It's really not. The, the thing that makes it a joke is the way that Anthony Michael Hall delivers it as he's leaving the waiting room in the hospital. He's running off and then he stops for a second and like turns back. Evil Dies Tonight. <laughs> That's the one. It's like uh, that one episode of South Park where they were doing the day after tomorrow. And everyone's like, we didn't listen. And it's just like Stan's dad rolling down his window. We, we, we didn't listen. Like we all have to like participate in the catchphrase. <laughs> it's that one delivery that I think makes that a punchline. 
And I think if you cut that line or you use an alternate take or something, that would maintain a bit of power instead of becoming a bit of a laugh line, unfortunately. In hindsight, I I think the biggest giveaway that like Tavali isn't Michael Myers is the fact that he can't drive a car. And what's the one thing we know about Michael Myers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, then. So, Joey, Andrew, is there anything we have not talked about in Halloween Kills that you think merits discussion? Uh, the only thing I will say is that obviously I'm on record as a Season of the Witch hater, but I love the visual reference to Season of the Witch in this. I think it's really good. The masks, the kids' yeah, masks. so cool. I mean, we'll talk about it next week probably, but I do like the green kind of fashions the Halloween franchise into like an oral fireside tradition. Yes. Where he's taking elements from the Halloween 2 that you've watched. The mob from Halloween 4 is in here as well. The mask from Halloween 3. Um, arguably the supernatural Michael from Halloween 5 and 6 mm. to a certain extent. Like- Rob Zombie did that too. His second movie is like a pastiche yeah. of all the Halloween sequels. It's true. Apparently the Let It Burn line as well is a reference to a line from Lewis in like Halloween 4 or something that got cut. Uh, which Interesting. That's, that's that really one. nerdy. <laughs> um, yeah. And just again, at the risk of sounding like uh, an old man shaking his fist at the sky or <laughs> Andrew on our Gran Torino episode. Like <laughs> I do think... I think, like, there's a big discussion about cozy horror. I think cozy horror is great. I think it's fantastic. A lot of pop horror exists now that is very friendly and very welcoming. I think you've... The, I know Joey likes the recent Scream sequels. <laughs> I find, like, the thing with the Scream sequels is that nobody dies anymore. Characters just get stabbed. The main characters and then, are, are yeah. bulletproof. Yeah. yeah. But but I, I, will, I think, though, I think they're building to a bloodbath in Seven. I think that's what they're I doing. I so. I think, genuinely, I, I think that's so. what they're doing. Because people were so mad. You consider those movies cozy? Those they movies are, are so so violent. <laughs> that's what that that's what I felt about Scream. They 4. wheel out Mason Gooding at the end, and he practically gives a thumbs up to the camera. <laughs> Sorry, that's how I felt about Scream Four. I was like, I know everyone loves that movie, but the fact that all of the core cast are are safe in that movie makes the whole thing feel kind of fan servicey to me, and it doesn't really it strike me as as effective as the other films of that series. So I'm with you on that. I mean, we we don't have time to get into this, but I I would argue that like that nostalgia is a large part of like what Scream Four is about, from like the the sepia tinted kind of Vaseline lenses through the fact that like the killer's motivation, like Emma Roberts' motivation, is that she has a more famous older female relative who is a celebrity who just will not die and will not get out of the spotlight. Like I think Scream Four is kind of about how. Gen X is unkillable, but we don't have time to get into that right now. (laughs) But yeah, the point I was going to make is that what I really like about Halloween Kills fundamentally is that it is a good old-fashioned, nasty, 1980s horror slasher sequel where anyone can die. Anyone can die, and does. And it's me, even the nice people, even the people you like, even the returning characters. And they're just going about their business, having a normal Halloween, and it's like, nope. And then just one more thing, I promise, and then we're absolutely positively done. I think this is the best directed of David Gordon Green's three Halloween movies. I think it's wonderfully well made. I really like its use of kind of visual metaphor and visual imagery. There's some nice stuff here. We talked about like the use of perspective from the perspective of the victims, flipping the classic Halloween trope on its head, but also like his use of mirrors and windows as recurring motifs and images so throughout the film you have these shots where characters are like peering through glass doors and panes and you're seeing stuff but you're not hearing sound there's a couple of great shots involving like mirrors like when sheriff dorsey is talking to karen for example there's the use of the mirror there 
And throughout the movie, you have this idea at the climax where, you know, Michael is looking out the window, but because it's so dark and black outside, the the window becomes a mirror itself reflecting back at him, which gets to that Carpenter idea of the, the darkness inside us all. Michael is the darkness lurking in the human soul, all that sort of stuff. I know this script is incredibly literal and heavy handed. They actually talk about the mirror metaphor. They talk about what he was looking at when he was looking at a Haddonfield. And actually, it turns out that he was looking back at himself. And that's key to understanding his motivation and character. But I still think it's a really lyrical visual motif. Yeah. It's a sort of visual storytelling that you don't normally get to see in slasher sequels. Mm-hmm. It's thematic, it's metaphorical, it's flowery. And it kind of calls attention to David Gordon Green as a director who like came from the indie sphere and who is applying the language of more conventional visual storytelling to what can occasionally feel like a run-of-the-mill slasher franchise. All right, I think we are done. <laughs> okay, so what we normally do at the end of every episode is we ask our guests to recommend something, something they're enjoying at the moment. It can be something related to the movie we just discussed, something completely unrelated, just something that brings you joy in these uncertain times. So to give William, to give Joey a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Uh, in these hopeful, wonderful times, I, <laughs> I, I've, I've been enjoying now. Today today I was listening to Three Bean Salad, which is a very funny um, podcast that I listen to. It's uh, Ben Partridge from uh, the Meat and Dairy Network. Uh, Mike Wozniak and Henry Packer, they talk about a topic they don't talk much about the topic <laughs> each week. And this week it was the Trojan War. But the reason I picked it out for this episode is that each week they also have a, a listener will send in a version of their team of their theme tune that's been kind of remade somehow. This week it was a John Carpenter version of <laughs> of, 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 of of their team tune and it was very well done so i um i'd i'd, I'd recommend that and if 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 you're just a halloween fan just listen to the end of it but, <laughs> but if if um do check out the episode because it's very funny they describe it as a cursed episode <laughs> because it it goes wrong in many ways <laughs> and william what would you recommend what are you enjoying at the moment okay um jeez I have been listening to uh, a lot of Chad and Jeremy lately. So I'm going to recommend people listen to Chad and Jeremy. Chad and Jeremy are probably best known for a summer song uh, nowadays, which was featured heavily by Wes Anderson in one or more of his movies. Um, they're a, a band from the 60s that were incredibly chill. They were just these incredibly like laid-back kind of songs, and I've been finding their work incredibly relaxing even when they're like a little depressing in their actual uh uh you know context and if you want a a bonus you can listen to their album uh multiple albums and you can watch their episodes of the adam west batman where they cameoed as themselves (laughs) and catwoman like kidnapped them and Batman and Robin had to save Chad and Jeremy for all the kids. Uh, they are, they're absolutely charmingly delightful. They look like they got lost and they're on the wrong set, but they're very, very cute and charming. And they're all, and they're weirdly mature. It's like, Oh, I hope because Adam West is, is plays Bruce Wayne as such, as such a, uh, 
It's such a stuffed shirt. Yeah. You know, such a, yeah. And, he, and he's just like, well, you know, I, I know this rock and roll thing is working out well for you two youths, but I hope you have another plan. And they're like, oh yeah, we're going to med school or something like that. It's <laughs> like, we, this is, we don't think this is going to last. They're like, oh, we're, we're being responsible young men. And I'm like, God, I love the show. So <laughs> that right there, listen to, listen to Chad and Jeremy right. uh, and uh, watch that episode of Batman. His stuffed shirtness, I feel, in Batman is so subversive. Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, it yeah. is. Yeah. It's a big cultural commentary. It is, 100%. Yeah, the, the, this huge popular Batman show was about how Batman is completely out of touch and representative of an <laughs> yeah. earlier generation that saw everything. Like ev- The cops are always right. Batman and Robin are fully deputized officers of the law. They don't, e- they don't even illegally park. There's a bit where we have to run inside this museum and save everybody. Wait, we need change for the meter. Oh, Every God. law is equally important. I'm like, oh my God. Batman goes to the bar and orders a pint of milk, I believe, at one point. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> <Straight> <laughs> brilliant thing about that is that like probably parents at the time were like okay nothing to see here (laughs) (laughs) this is all above board (laughs) yeah yeah and then you have all the villains who are having the most fun and they're like all coded as like outsiders they're just all of these like wonderfully (laughs) outlandish like like characters who unlike everyone else we're actually having fun we we represent everything you want in society but batman doesn't like us yeah and they're like like, boo yeah Yeah. (laughs) And Joey, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, just because we just saw Jim Cummings, I'm going to recommend The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is his awesome, um, I already said vampire, huh, his awesome werewolf movie. It's really, really clever. Um, it's quite scary. It's really funny as well. And the lead is an alcoholic. So I always relate to that. <laughs> uh, but it's just, yeah, it's a really special movie. and I don't really see a lot of people talking about it. So yeah. I think it needs a bit more love. But yeah, check that out if you were intrigued by Jim Cummings in this and you should have been even though he didn't grow his mustache back for it which he should have this is the a cop. third in the unofficial Jim Cummings bad cop trilogy which uh, I quite like I interviewed him and I said to him I, like the, I remember the PR ringing in and being like okay one more question and I was like I've got a really important question and he's like yeah shoot and I was like what happened to your mustache I will say, like, Cummings is, in my experience, a very nice man. He's the only yeah. director who has given me a screener of his movie because he saw me make a tweet about wanting to watch it on Twitter. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. Where, he, where I, was, I was like, it's it's odd that the that Diff aren't screening Thunder Road. It feels like it would be a natural part of the lineup. And he pops mm. in my replies and like, oh, by the way, check your inbox. And there's a copy of that movie waiting for me. I wish I liked Thunder Road more. I do agree that Wolf of Snow Hollow is a masterpiece, though, so I don't feel as bad about not loving Thunder Road. Well, Thunder Road, it's a tough watch. It's not like, uh, yeah. like I've seen it, I wouldn't watch it again. You know yeah. what I mean? It's that kind of movie. Um, all right, then. And for myself, uh, I was going to recommend Wolf of Snow Hollow. That was, the, <laughs> that was, that really? was like the one, the one that I had I, in the tank. Oh, no. <laughs> I, like, I, like the, I like the idea that he slid into your DMs and he's like, Hey, it's out in cinemas. So. Yeah, yeah. Just, just <laughs> buy a ticket. <laughs> buy a fucking yeah, ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buy a fucking ticket. <laughs> um, well, no, the issue was that it didn't have international distribution, to be fair. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fucking loser. Go, go buy a ticket. Like a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Darren, click this link. Wink. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> it, it takes me to, yeah, it takes me to my local uh, like lighthouse booking page yeah exactly um, <laughs> yes he does seem like a very nice man to be yeah, fair to him um, 
All right, and so I don't know what I'm going to recommend then. Um, that's grand. All right, you can, uh, Joey, where are you it's at? It's a double recommendation. Yeah, that's a, lock. a double yes. recommendation, exactly. It, like, it's, I love that it's Silence of the Lambs, but for, like, middle-aged men who are overconfident. Yes. Like, which is such a great hook. It's like, Silence of the Lambs, sure, oh. it's, it's for women. You know, great, it's a feminist movie. What if, and hear me out here, it was for middle-aged men going through a midlife crisis. It's just, it's yeah. so great. I do want though for the wik- uh, for the wiki for for people to record that Darren didn't have a recommendation because he <laughs> he ran out before Darren before Andrew did <laughs> <laughs> just the amount of episodes we're oh. doing okay feck it thank you Andrew you've done no, it now no. as we've been going along I've been trying to come up with a recommendation that pairs nicely with each of the movies so for the third Halloween movie I recommended third movies in horror franchises for the reboot I recommended reboots in horror franchises here has you... to be a 12th movie Darren it does not we we, we gave up a 10 10 was the limit a sequel it... to a reboot no, yeah yeah no you make it sound like that's an easier assignment as well. well Scream Six. <laughs> Scream Six is good. I don't, it's good. Don't, it's a movie just, that just just name a few good uh, dodecologies. Yeah, that's it. Like twelfth um, movie. So I guess like Fast X is technically one of these, right? I don't know. Uh, no, no, because that's the eleventh movie. Twelve that's... Monkeys. Oh, there, the that's, that's a fair. Yeah. No. I mean, um, Martin Scorsese's The Passion would... of the Christ does have a very prominent twelve set in it. I think. Um, exactly. Oh Twelve God. Monkeys was a sequel to Seven. Um, <laughs> you have to have watched Eleven. Two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey. I I love that. Like when they tried to make a sequel to Seven, it was like eight millimeter. It's like okay, well, well done, well played, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I would recommend, I was going to recommend the Roald Dahl shorts on Netflix because they are another example of a creator revisiting a classic work, putting their own unique spin on it, adapting the text in a way that is subversive and plays with audience expectations and challenges your assumptions about how the genre works. So I think that's a that's a watertight lock. That's, that's what I'm going for there. Uh, so those four shorts are in order. The Wonderful Life of Henry Sugar, The Swan, uh, The Ratcatcher, and Poison. And I would recommend watching them in those orders. Netflix... They're impossible to find on Netflix unless you know you're looking for them. So that's the order. All right, then. So, Joey, watch out. Watch up to where can we find you. Uh, I don't know if Twitter's still going to be a thing when this is out, but I'm on Twitter at JoeyLDG. You'll find all my stuff on there. Uh, I did review this movie, so I'll link it when I'm sharing the episode. Oh, we'll, we'll also include in the show notes. I think, oh, thank you. <laughs> I think that there is the new name for for twitter is don't know if this is still going to be a thing it's seriously like <laughs> it's ser- to be fair we all invited twitter down a dark alley and like yes. just beat it to a bloody pulp and shot it in the face several times yeah but somehow somehow it stands up at the end and stabs us all in the neck <laughs> all right and and may or may not end up in a sewer of public discourse but we'll <gasps> get to that um, all right so william if people are looking for a bit more william bibiani in their lives where can they find you what you have what you up to okay well i don't okay i feel weird about putting it like that but fair enough uh <laughs> you can find my work i write for various publications i write for the rap i write for slash film uh i write for the film verdict sometimes uh but the majority of my work you can find on the critically acclaimed network that's our podcast network me and my co-host whitney seibel the name dropped a couple of times uh, we have a series of podcasts over there. We review new movies on our show called Critically Acclaimed. We have a show that we started a few months ago called Thank Godzilla, It's Friday, where every Friday we're reviewing another film in the Godzilla series in order. Oh, God. 
I'll need Marsley more insane than this. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sounds like something my husband would love. <laughs> okay. We, we have a show called Cancel Too Soon where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. We do have an episode about Voyagers, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, we That was on hiatus for a while. We brought it back for Halloween and we're going to bring a few episodes here and there, uh, sort of specials. Uh, but we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can listen to all of our shows ad free. You can get episodes of Think Godzilla. It's Friday a week early. And we have exclusive shows on our Patreon, including All Our Yesterdays, where we are reviewing every single episode of Star Trek ever. Uh, we've gone over, we got over 200 episodes in the can for that. Uh, so there's a huge backlog that opens up. Uh, we also have a show called um, Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. We're about halfway through the 1950s on that. And we just started because the Oscars didn't used to have a category for this, but, now, but then they started to in the 50s. Uh, we're going to do one that's only the best international where we look at every single nominee for best international film. And we also do commentary tracks oh. and hangouts and the like. So that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Um, Andrew is like so thankful that this is the podcast that we do. <laughs> and just the one, just the uh, one. <laughs> I, like, These are lifetime commitments. You, you hear about some Patreons and you're like, I don't know if that's worth it, but that, that is you. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is incredible. I, I, and, and we have Becca, we did a whole podcast that was reviewed every, one episode for every single episode or two-parter of the Batman TV series from the 1960s. That's all That's back the catalog. That's all in there, and you can listen to that, too. We did one for Firefly. Uh, we did one for, uh, we had a short little show called Not on Disney+, Plus, where we looked at all of the things that Disney is too ashamed of to put on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> um, <laughs> And a lot of other stuff as well. So that's all at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And I'm on the social medias at William Bibiani. And you can find the show on Blue Sky and Twitter for, for now uh, at critic acclaim because critically acclaimed was too long, apparently. Perfect. All right. Um, if you need... Oh, and, and hold on. And so <laughs> oh. uh, I also make soap with my partner. I was, I was about to jump in. My, my partner and I, uh, we have a soap of the month club that we run through Patreon. It's patreon.com slash salt cat soap uh it is currently only for for residents of the united states just because of shipping costs uh but it's uh we we design or we we get ideas from our uh our patrons uh, we have a poll they pick a, a soap type for the month and uh we make that soap we ship it to them and there's also uh a bonus uh soap of the month club like you get two soaps a month at certain tiers uh and we also have a, a podcast where we just sort of talk about our daily lives uh, on there so if you want to uh, get some soap head on over to patreon.com slash salt cat soap we would uh, sure like it andrew is taking notes on how to run a patreon like andrew is like business <laughs> plan right here um we will be back next week we'll be talking about the wonderful halloween ends with a bit of luck the fantastic richard drum the wonderful niall Glenn will be joining us for that discussion thank you so much joey thank you so much Will. thank you so much this has been wonderful thank you thank you so much Willio. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm sorry that I rose to your challenge of let the record show that Darren didn't have a recommendation. I should have been the bigger man and I should have let it pass. But instead, I grabbed old Huckleberry off the wall and just took it for one last spin. But th thank you so much, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank Bye. you, Darren. Take care, everybody. Thank Bye. you.